What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 466, podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. Today, via Skype, we have returning guest Carlo Pengelingen Labrador, and in the flesh, we have Wrong Real co-founder, the great Mikhail Karadimov. We're going to be talking about some really long movies and whether or not they are too long, too short, or just right. And a quick word of warning before we get started. For the first half of the episode, sadly, the audio for me and Mikhail is going to sound really funky. The original audio files are completely corrupted, and the only reason the audio wasn't lost entirely was due to the backup recording through Skype, which had a different mic from the two connected to the corrupted file. At any rate, bear with us. The audio is much cleaner for the second half. But now, without further delay, I present to you Wrong Reel 466. I'm going to totally blank it on the director's fucking Zoller? name. Yeah. S. Craig Zoller's Zoller. latest film, Dragged Across Concrete, as a jumping off point, a springboard into the topic of long movies. Are they too long? Are they too short? Are they just right? Because if you haven't heard previous appearances, Carlo is an expert on long movies. <laughs> Torturously Pre- long movies. Prefers <laughs> long movies about like glaciers melting and yeah. like, you know, insects being like reborn into different shapes and forms. Like anything that takes a long time. Like he would rather watch a movie of the sunset than the actual sunset. So, but guys, welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us back. Yeah, yeah man. Hey, it's, it's been, been too long. It's been since like the, the first episode of 2019 was you guys with my, Bill Scurry talking about Mike Lee's Naked. So oh, that was a, yes. yeah, it was a good yeah. couple months ago. Well, Carlson, yeah, you are our guest, and you've got we got you here from LA. What's been going mm-hmm. on? Catch us up. What, what movie stars are you dating? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I've had my eye on um, on Margaret Qualley, but I actually don't know how old she is. Is she in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as one of the... She's in the trailer, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw her in the trailer just this morning. And Absolutely. I was like, oh, wow, she's in this. And she was also in The Nice Guys. And, of course, The Leftovers was probably... Oh, like she was, she was oh, great in Leftovers. She, oh, okay. I, yeah, and she was in that Spike Jones commercial where she dances everywhere. Yeah, and, and, okay, yes, yeah. And she's Andy McDowell's daughter. That's, that's right. So, yeah, yeah, she's pretty little thing. Well, cool. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're setting your sights very high. But yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood. This episode will not be posted for a couple weeks because of other stuff that's in the way. But that movie did make its debut today. You hear how urgent Pan. we are, Carlo? Yeah. Well, What's that? You hear how what, urgent we are? I just. I, I've recorded a couple episodes recently, and I, there's just a uh, there's a, a bottleneck of crap in front of this fucker that I, that I need to edit. Yeah, and we're also talking about a movie that came out like a month ago. So. Oh, I would say over a month ago. Yeah, more than that. Point, which yeah. is why yeah. I wanted to open it over, up into yeah, just a, a larger yeah, yeah. discussion, since there will be less urgency to discuss Drive Across Concrete. Well, Mikhail, since uh, we last saw you, what's been going on with your screenwriting endeavors, your uh, short film endeavors, all that good stuff? Screenwriting's going well. Short film, I shot the second one. Uh, all, uh, do not shoot with family, friends, non-actors, non-crews. <laughs> Just don't do it. You'll find that half your audio is garbage, half your shots are garbage. You shouldn't trust normal people with holding a boom and listening to audio and then telling you when the audio is bad. So now I'm instead of making a 15-minute fairly straightforward short film, uh, probably gonna edit a six-minute abstraction that, whatever, <laughs> to salvage it. But on, you know, um, you know, find people who are invested. Of course, and yeah. uh, that was my fault. I learned a lot of valuable lessons as a director. I lost control of the set once, and that was totally on me, and I was not prepared for it. But uh, how bad of a temper tantrum did you? Oh no, I didn't have a temper tantrum. <laughs> it was sixteen yelling, uh, like screaming Irish Italians who were already maybe a little too tipsy for the scene I needed from a group of people. So 
I've decided that, uh, you know, just gonna spend a little bit more money next time and get a crew and decent actors and all that stuff. Absolutely, let's crowdfund yeah. that bitch. Crowdfund it. And, uh, yeah, and the screenwriting's going well. I'm halfway done with the feature, so... Upward and onward. It's yeah. onwards and upwards, man. Onwards and I'm a fucking immigrant. I'll say in whatever order I want. <laughs> so, but now since we are knocking at the door of having it been five years since we started this podcast, yeah. do you have any pearls of wisdom or insights or just like deep, like reflective thoughts about this whole uh, this journey that we have taken? Oh man, you know my biggest thing actually is uh, as soon as something like remotely hits big with me, I am going to start listening through all the old podcasts. Find out what I said in them. Start apologizing <laughs> right away. Get in front of the bullet, and uh, you know maybe then Disney won't have to fire me to rehire me. Hey, well, <laughs> he who must not be named, our original co-founder, that I, I signed a uh, non-disparagement clause to never discuss. If you want to take those episodes down, it won't hurt my feelings. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll go do some like editing of my own. We'll re-release them or something. Yeah. Just but, don't get rid of the before trilogy episode. Keep that. Yeah. No, <laughs> Just no. say that. The Absolutely. Only, the only other thing is, to be honest with you, the other day I was actually, I was actually looking at my Blu-ray collection and. Um, I was I, I really badly wanted to take a picture of it and put it up on Twitter, but we knew that wasn't going to happen. So I just thought about it instead of just like, wow, so many of these movies, more than half of them, were probably inspired by just the shit that I've done here with everyone that I've gotten to know and things like that. And it was a very um, sentimental moment, and I feel like those are rare and rarer the older you get. So it was really nice to latch on to. Actually, I would argue the reverse. The older you get, the more you'll find yourself like watching some stupid commercial about like puppy chow, and you're like. <gasps> The dog's so cute, and you, know, you like, find yourself unexpectedly yeah. moved by things that are too completely maudlin and ridiculous. Uh, so. I feel like it's more of the thing of like, uh, oh, these are the five friends I really, really like. Everyone else I'm kind of callous towards, or you know, things mm. like that. I won't give it a chance to like know someone new, and if I will, it'll only be for networking purposes now. Got a network to get work. Well, Carlo, Absolutely. Well, where do you stand on uh, nostalgia? Are you feeling nostalgic for New York yet? Are you going to come back to us? Ah... Uh. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because um, I actually wa the the most recent movie I watched again was The Warriors. Hell and yeah. I, I I told a, a friend of mine like, man, like I'm really gonna miss New York if we watch this. And like the whole time, I, no, actually the most recent movie I saw was John Wick Three, which also mm -hmm. kind of made me nostalgic. Oh, but yeah, as it's well. a total love song in New York, absolutely. Yeah, but um, that was that thing of just like the nitpicking stuff. Like I realized now, like after the nth time of watching The Warriors, that. A lot of the elevated train scenes oh, were yeah. actually shot in Brooklyn, not in the Bronx. Like, they're obviously on the M train. <laughs> Even though we, we have many elevated trains of our own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I don't even think they shot the Van Cortlandt Park part in Van Cortlandt Park. It was, like, shot in Riverside Park, too. So it's those kinds of things. And then, you know, in John Wick, he kind of, like, teleports a few times, you know. Or, like, all of a sudden he's in well, Brooklyn. Well, to be fair, they do set like, that up that, like, whenever there were people walking by, he did, like, vanish, like, fan <laughs> in the wind. Yeah. So he yeah, might actually like... be fucking teleporting. Yeah, Dude, they true. already greenlit yeah. number four. Number yeah, four yeah. is going to come 2021. 2021. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, people... My, my biggest thing about John Wick, I mean, apart from how much fun it is, is just we have so few new concepts that have taken root in the 21st century that are not based on pre-existing intellectual property from the 20th. I applaud any filmmakers who come up with something new, make it stick, develop a fan base. And so we're not sitting around saying, like, oh, my God, you're killing my childhood. It's like, make up new yeah. shit. Make up some new cool shit and we can get excited. And that way you can make kids who are 13 right now make their childhood special by giving them something that's yeah. wholly their own. On top of it all, I feel like what that movie's doing that other movies that can't do, new franchises that do try to attempt to create something new, is that... 
they unravel their world in a very interesting way. It's never like all up front. Like it's just a little bit more details, a little bit more details, but enough details for you to start asking more questions as opposed right. to like, I feel like when Brad Bird tried to do Tomorrowland, it's like everything needs to be in this movie. Everything needs to be in the first one. I need to explain this entire world as opposed to what John Wick is doing, which is keeping us more interested. Yeah, start out as a trickling right. stream and slowly let it widen yeah. into a more raging river. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah, the other thing I also want to add to that is just, um, like, it spawned several imitators, obviously. That's one of the things Already, it's done. Yeah. But, like, it still keeps showing those imitators that you can never be as, like, inventive or as creative as we are with this movie. <laughs> like, that, it, with each, like, part, it's like they keep upping the stakes and then the... The imitators are just like always lagging behind from them. You Which know? is interesting though, because they have like one of the directors peeled off of the first one to do Atomic Blonde, yep. Deadpool right. two, and I mean I enjoyed both movies to their own. They're not nearly as great as John Wick though. Yeah, Atomic no. Blonde yeah. had a grittiness that I really liked. And, of course, it had... But it also had its first hour. It has Sophia Batella, which I really <laughs> liked. <laughs> but it doesn't have that, that same magic. But what I do like is you can tell these guys are watching action movies from around the world. When you see Indonesian action stars mm-hmm. popping, you're like... All yeah, right. the two guys from The Raid yeah, are like, in These it. guys yes. have seen The Raid. They've seen Raid Redemption. And they've probably yeah. seen uh, The Night Comes For Us. That at least shows they're still hungry for discovering the best talent possible out there. And I loved how they were just like, oh, man, he's getting slow. And the other guy's like, but he's still... John Wick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're so, so excited to be fighting this guy they're obviously a huge fan of. Let's switch gears a bit. Carlo, you were the one, or you and Mikhail together are the guys who first introduced me to Craig Zoller through Bone Tomahawk mm-hmm. and um, Brawl and Cell Block 99. And I think we can all agree that those movies are pretty goddamn good. And it seems like, at least from our Facebook chat, we were less excited about Dragged Across Concrete and a universal th- uh, kind of a criticism all three of us had was uh-huh. it's a little on the long side and like, you know, if your movie's going to drag a bit, don't call it Dragged Across Concrete because you're, oh, you're, you're inviting all, all the ridicule. <laughs> yes. Exactly. But I, uh, like once again, I, I'm in Zoller's corner. I'm rooting for him all the way. But I just feel like I kept waiting mm. for that movie to find that gear. I was like, all right, it's about to get started. All right, it's, mm. right, it's going to get started now. All right, now it's going to really like cut loose. And I was like, oh shit, it's over now. And it never really, like, <laughs> it never really cut loose. But mm-hmm. what, what were your thoughts on Dragged Across Contra- Concrete vis-a-vis its length? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I, it's kind of a two-pronged thing for me because one prong is kind of like, I, I really appreciate how he uses time. Like, I think it, it comes more to the forefront in this film than the others, maybe because of, I guess, his, there's less of an emphasis on event. So it's just more like, okay, time passing. Like, I think the first kind of, I guess, sequence in the film that signaled to me that, okay, it's going to go at this pace was the cigarette on the on the fire escape. Mm. So, like, Mel Gibson's waiting, and he puts the cigarette on the fire escape, and then you have this lumbering figure, figure <laughs> Vince Vaughn, going up the fire escape, and then it vibrates. And I was just like, okay, this is the pace that we're going at. And then, you know, like, he... When we we heard a lot of things about the movie way before it came out, right? About like it's about police brutality and it's gonna be Mel like Gibson's attachment. Yeah, all of those things, and then like you see the scene, and you're like, well, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> like in thinking like this guy who's like this filmmaker who's known for his brutal violence, like does like a yeah. police brutality well, video no, called after on you cell phone. split somebody by the taint. Then yeah, it's really tough to come back from that, <laughs> yeah. right? Or like somebody's head getting like 
decapitated into like a hole in the ground, like or getting scraped across concrete. Like, yeah, well, actually, that, that face was actually dragged across concrete. Yeah, exactly. So it's like when that start when like that was the first, I guess, violent scene in the film, right? Um, it just was a. It wasn't really. It was tame, you know. It just wasn't. So. I went with it with the pace and then I think actually it's probably his funniest movie like there were just a lot of things that made me laugh like um, there was one thing where I think they were in the diner after the the fire escape like raid mm-hmm. and then he's and then Mel Gibson like asks Vince Vaughn if whoever's singing is like a man or a woman or something <laughs> like that <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's just like stuff like that that made me me laugh and like there's something i guess it's still very earnest and like sincere like the performances are you could say they're serious but like you know that adds to the humor i think it's just like you know they that whole deadpan that they have through it but then yeah at the same time it's just like the time it didn't feel too long to me like i didn't necessarily feel like oh there should be like a scene that wasn't necessary but like there's one way of like I guess building tension through time, you know, when it's just like okay, it keeps building up and building up, and then yeah, I guess that's something that we can all all three of us can get into is like was that build up worth it? You know, it's like we get to that climax where it's the shootout, and it's like is is that? And I have another film that I would like to actually compare with it that I saw like a little after, uh, but we can we can bring that up oh, later. Bomb, so. bomb. And we're gonna zig and zag all over the place, and, okay. uh, and so all yeah, right. by all means, feel well, feel free. Okay, to- yeah. So yeah, if you guys if you guys want to dovetail towards this like have you guys seen a uh, hell or high water yeah yep Kenzie. yeah like the way that i think the tension and the violence is is built in that movie i think was just done much better well yeah it's the more you successful know? film overall i think mm-hmm. and what it and what it set out yeah. to achieve right and then it's just like um you have a lot of scenes too where like yeah they eat at a diner you know i think there's some comparisons you know they're they're two lawmen too there's a bond with them and then, of course, you know, spoiler alert, I guess we're going to get into it anyway. One of them dies, and the way that it happens, too, is, like, kind of matter of fact. And, like, how the partner reacts to that death. You know, the, I, there is a lot of parallels, I feel, with Hell or High Water and Drag the Cross Concrete. And Hell or High Water is, like, probably an hour shorter. Mm-hmm. But, or at least feels it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it carries that tension so much better. I than mean, when I, I was think. watching Drag Across Concrete, I was so excited to watch it. I watched it the first chance I could. Once I, I immediately, did. I, I even skipped seeing it in the theater because it was going to be faster. Day, right? Yeah, it was going to be easier and faster yeah, to watch day, it online. Yeah. And about ha- halfway through, I was like, "Am I even going to review this?" Like, I mean, I ended up not even reviewing it all. I couldn't find like something to kind of like to hang my hat on, or where I would have like a either a negative or positive take. I just, there was nothing that was provoking enough of a response out of me. And of all the filmmakers out there who can provoke responses, yeah. it was like, Craig Zahler should be provoking mm-hmm. something. And it's a weird thing because I was, I was kind of liking it. But doing a review of a movie that you kind of like, it's, it's so much effort. And I was like, all right, well, I'd rather just spend that three hours like going to the gym or yeah. taking a nap or <laughs> rub, rubbing one out or something. And say, <laughs> yeah, I, when I was watching it, I, I feel like it did hit a kind of gear that I enjoyed once... Uh, he did a, he did a thing which I think only like a director's cut could get away with this whole tangential story that uh, Carpenter goes through. What's her name? Oh yes, yeah, that's, that's the best part of the movie. Part. I thought. Well, which is also yeah, yeah. funny too because that 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 that's a testament to my favorite aspect of the movie. Mm. Oddly enough, yes, the movie was too long for me. All right, 
full disclosure, stoned on the way into the theater. Halfway through, my buddy has a vape pen, so got stoned in the bathroom again. Because there's no other way to survive this fucking movie, quite frankly. Unless you take speed. <laughs> well, no, then you might lose your mind about how slow it's going. So I was watching it. It became a thing of, like, family guy for me. Of how they, they always excelled at that joke that went so long that it wasn't funny anymore. Oh, wait. But it's funny again because this joke won't fucking end. You know, that weird inverse, like, self-punishing thing where you just decide to laugh. I think this movie was so yeah. fucking slow. I started laughing at how fucking slow it was. They were, like, zippering things up, unzippering them, coughing, and yeah. then saying, excuse me, opening doors incredibly slowly, to the point where I was cackling the entire time the second time I went to get stoned. So for me, I actually found a lot of fun in that time drag. Once I got used to it, once I was just like, of course he's not going to fucking speed up this movie. Why would he all of a sudden speed up after that first, like you said, fire escape exchange? That fire ex- mm-hmm. ex- uh, that thing is like 10 minutes long there out there yeah, or something. Yeah. So I, I became like, I started getting used to that and I started getting into it and to the point where I ended up really enjoying the movie to my friends like, detriment they fucking hate well, you movie. feel like you've actually been on a stakeout after watching these guys sit there for days on a stakeout yeah. like, all right wow like how do you shit yeah. how do you piss like and just like crummy food bad diet coffee sleeping mm. in the back just like the grind and the tedium of sitting in your car hoping and praying mm. that something's going to happen so that i thought was captured well where like the form was following its function but once again i just kept expecting that at a certain point like in bone tomahawk when they suddenly just get their asses kicked out of the blue it's like all right, oh yeah a moment's going to come yeah. like in bone tomahawk when they just get their the shit packed in and we're just the movie's going to just take off no but they see as soon as they get the guns out they just set up for like a sniper right fight basically yeah. and yeah. just lie down and like all right i guess we're just fucking here now yeah and i the right. funny thing is the movie what my b- biggest issue is probably i think that's it's the most overwritten dialogue he's ever, he's done so far i thought mm. there was a lot of cringeworthy dialogue i think him trying to turn anchovies into a thing was very squirm inducing for me whenever vince fallen would say anchovies but, yeah. you know um they, but there i was watching the movie and i think they're like very easy places i don't think you need to look at the raw footage of this movie or anything it's just mm. there were clear cut signs of what three minutes right there cut it three minutes right there cut it i think yeah. when they go and talk to don johnson the only time mm-hmm. i guess don johnson's in the movie and they yeah. go ahead and just talk about where society is today and that you can't really do anything or sneeze without having your dick put in a cuff or anything they go for five minutes having their PC conversation, anti-PC conversation, when all of a sudden Don Johnson just goes, says, well, both of you are being suspended. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, that's where the scene starts. That's where the fucking scene starts. Why are we talking? Obviously, these guys... That's actually an excellent point. The whole movie is like a really awesome rough cut. It's a rough assembly. Yeah, it's assemblage. And, and, mm-hmm. and now go back into the editing room and fine tune and just find, and and, I'm not even, I don't even think anything needs to be rearranged. I don't need to see, oh, do you have this angle? Just tighten, no. tighten the screws. Just mm-hmm. cut about. And also, there's so many yeah. just like two shot, three shots that I feel like it would be very easy to fucking cut around. The whole mm-hmm. like, and I think um, to have a two hour and 40 minute movie and to have the two cops have a really well-developed relationship, but then to have there are two black counterpoints in the in the in the dudes who take the mm-hmm. job, for them, yeah, to, I, them I know a lot less. You know the main guy obviously yeah. because he has a motivation. We see him in the opening Was scene. His little but brother, his, him. his buddy though, mm-hmm. played by uh, Michael Jai White. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, no sense of who the fuck he was. Well, he's also more of like an action star. Like he, he doesn't necessarily have the world's best acting job. But I, I, I like seeing Michael J. White in just about anything. But I totally agree mm-hmm. that if you're gonna have it be like a mirror image relationship. 
to a degree. Which is what I'm pretty yeah. sure he was attempting to yeah. do. It yeah, just, it, it lacked the uh, the substance. It wasn't bad. The runtime between those two weren't balanced enough. And, uh, yeah, I, right. mean, I think this is very much definitely, like... Listen, I mean, the two movies weren't runaway successes, so I don't know where the fuck he got into his head that he could get away with a two-hour and, like, 50-minute fucking movie like this. I mean, The Godfather's only 15 minutes longer. Yeah, well, The Godfather... That's an interesting... Uh, all right, I would like to pivot. The Godfather is always the argument I use for... Uh, a very specific argument I've been making about film editing versus digital editing. And this might have come up in the uh, podcast before, but the thing with digital editing now is that you don't lose, what for one thing, the quality of your film by like constantly reprinting it and like, oh yes. shit, this cut didn't right. work, so we're going to have to go back to the negative and everything and just constantly wear away at your quality. To a certain extent, when you were shooting a movie back then, you had to think real hard about how you were going to edit it before you shot it also, just to just so you wouldn't fuck with your footage too much to the point where it mm-hmm. deteriorated. Whereas now, I feel like you could cut every scene 50 different yeah. ways until the director or the producer likes it. Yeah. And it, it, it forces you, just as an editor, it forces you when you do that shit to just think about that one scene, and you're thinking one scene at a time, and you're not seeing the bigger fucking pacing. You're not seeing the bigger tapestry. And so you end up getting these disjointed like studio flicks like the Hunger Game movies. I feel like we're all edited mm. that way. Each scene from scene to scene was seen. <laughs> you and I on. saw what Mockingjay together. Which oh, one when I fell asleep the last yeah. ten minutes. Mikhail curled up like a cat in his chair. He curled up. Side- Mikhail's kind of a tall guy, but he curled up sideways. And I was like, all right, he's done. Once you start like hip escaping into the corner of your chair, yeah, yeah, like you're so screwed. Um, but like that's why I mean that's why Godfather yeah, yeah. And Lawrence of Arabia feels so smooth for three almost. Three, I mean Godfather two. Let's talk about that one. That's three hours and twenty minutes. Yeah, but and then it has that parallel that story, fucking... too. You have the father and the son and, like, you know, how it splits the running time between them. And, like, they're... I mean, that is, yeah, like, something so I, I don't think... Yeah, they don't give credit enough to that movie. It's just, like, showing a father and the son at the same age and, like, what's going on in their lives running parallel is, to me, like, that is, like, one of the master strokes of the movie, just, like, choosing to, to tell the story that way, yeah. you know? And, um, uh... But, yeah, I mean... Just to add on to that point of digital versus film, I mean, that reminds me of that story of, speaking of another long movie, Casino, you know, that was the first Scorsese film that he edited digitally, and that's what they, they said, like, Thomas Schoonmaker, his, ed- his usual editor, like, they had, like, so many different, like, cuts of the movie, because he could just keep doing it, like, he just kept on making, like, different cuts, there were, I think, like, hundreds of versions of certain scenes, because he just, like, could do whatever Too he wanted. Too options, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and I I do actually. And this might be blasphemous. Prefer maybe Casino to Goodfellas because I like it as the grimy <laughs> version of well, it. You and Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne is also a big. Know. I mean, I guess in decent company, his last movie sucked, but whatever. He, uh, <laughs> I think Casino is better. But to say that Goodfe- Goodfellas is obviously the easier to watch movie. Yeah, like that thing. Sure. That it thing flows. is just you're just watching water run out it of a flows faucet. Very yeah, it's, well. It flows very well, and that I mean, if you're mentioning this whole thing of like. You know, the first thing they cut digitally was Casino, I mean, the two of them. I mean, that must have something to do with it. You're just, like, always second-guessing yourself to a certain extent, too. It just gives you... I don't know, I feel like directors do need a sandbox to a certain extent, or limits, just to, like, that really... Whenever you have to, like, try to find your way around a barricade or around the limit of some kind, like, Jaws and Spielberg is a perfect example of that. That movie, by the sounds of it, was going to be a lot worse. But once you set a limit to yourself, I think that brings out a creativity that... Digital editing, yeah. I think, is kind of, like, farting away. Well, that was the thing with Godfather, too, was also, yeah, the meddling of, um, what is that producer, Robert, Robert Evans? Uh, Robert Evans, yeah, like, that's why in 2, like, uh, Coppola actually specifically stipulated that he would only direct part 2 
if Robert Evans stayed away Couldn't from come near him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, but that was like the pressure. Like Godfather was supposed to be a disaster too. Like it was not in, like I, just. The, of course, Robert Evans' version is that the reason Godfather One was a success was because of his meddling. Of course, Coppola yeah. roundly rejects that. Like uh-huh. it all depends on who you ask. But the beautiful thing is, like during that time when, when Robert Evans was in charge of Paramount, a lot of good movies were made on his watch. To what degree he can claim any credit is debatable. Because for me, I'm 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 all in on the directors. Like Roman Roman Polanski directed Rosemary's Baby. It's great because of Roman Polanski. It's not great because of Robert Evans happening to be the producer. But he also did produce like Chinatown. He produced The Godfather. He produced so he did have a great little hot streak. But also in the late '60s, early '70s, there were so many great directors around. I don't know. Like he, I mean, you, you could almost kind of like fall backwards into working with like yeah. <laughs> really good directors. Yeah. But I, I think Coppola. Godfather 2, I think, is the less commercial film, but I do love Godfather 2 quite intensely, and I've seen it, I have no idea how many times, but it, I, I can. I always have fun revisiting that movie. Well, it's also, these are three-hour movies. That's Those are movies that I will watch maybe once every two years or something, easily. I just right. bought it on Blu-ray, and I already, like, just standing there in my room staring, I'm like, I tell Hannah, I'm like, I can't fucking wait to watch this movie again. I fucking <laughs> can't. Like, I'm somehow more excited to rewatch this movie I've watched uh, maybe 10 or 11 times than I am most things coming out this year, if not mm. everything coming out this year at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, so to tie back to, um, to Drag the Sonic? Frost Concrete, like the reason... No, first for... they gotta redesign that bitch. Right, I'm sorry, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt Carlos. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. But like the, you know, the I guess the production um, battle in behind the scenes with like the lengths and stuff, like that, you know, Lionsgate wanted to make a two-hour version of it, and then, you know, but he, uh, S. Craig Zoller had the director's cut in his contract, so um, they so fucked. the way they punished him was the same way, like, you know, they punished, like, um, Bong Joon-ho for Snowpiercer or, like, uh, Jim Jarmusch for Dead Man, which was like, well, fuck you, we're gonna give you a limited release, yeah. and, like, one theater in each state or something like that and that's what happened yeah. so it's like we had, like, we had, we had one theater in New York and I think it had like two screenings that opening day it's like alright well that clearly is not an opening and same thing happened with um, what was it Under the Silver Lake the uh, A24 oh, yeah. film yeah, got buried too. they just yeah, said yeah, you know what late. They just went, f- fuck it, and they just kind of like let it go, and it came out like in one or two theaters. It was a date and date also. Yeah, yeah and it just it just disappeared. What, but what was the issue with that? They also just didn't like what he was doing with it? I think they had all the confidence in the world until it had a mixed response at the Cannes Film Festival, and they're like, ooh, maybe we miscalculated. But I, I don't know the behind the scenes on that, but it's just one of the things where if, if you don't push a movie when it comes out... It, it vanishes. There's just that's, there's too much content. That's another trend I've been noticing of late is just like uh, movies coming out of uh, big European festivals, and if they got even a bit of a lukewarm or ambivalent response, boom, these movies are being re-edited all of a sudden. Like I remember, yep. well, I mean, Southland Tales might be a bad example because that was oh always shit, a I'm of seeing picture. that on Thursday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that thing so is being fucking uh, re uh, re-examined yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 actually doing a screening here of the can edit, so the original oh. edit before they trimmed it down. And that's so, the guy who did Donnie Darko. Yeah, Richard Kelly. Yeah, yeah I never saw. Who also has which is another notorious cut. director's cut. Yeah, yeah, and like that, I guess yeah, that's another interesting um, avenue to go down because like with Donnie Darko, I actually preferred the theatrical cut over the director's cut. Like it just oh, flows Dark- better. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Donnie Darko yeah. one just became like fat and bloated. Yeah, there are plenty of great theatrical cuts out there that are vastly superior to the extended versions. Like for me, I'm always 
Director's cuts are great when a movie has been taken away from a film, like The Wild Bunch. The director's cut was a necessity, or Blade Runner. The director's cut is an absolute necessity. But when a director just wants to make a longer version, almost never is it an improvement. Like when Peter Jackson made his extended versions of the Lord of the Rings films, all three of them were vastly inferior movies. I'm like, started slugging along. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe that's a great way to pivot into my list. I got a lot of questions for you guys, but I'm only going to talk about movies. Real quick, though, I do want to say something, though. Blood, Blood Simple. And what did have a director's cut that they cut down on, and they asked them why, and they said, "Well, you don't try to extend the movie you made in your fucking twenties. Like, you don't make a movie in your twenties, say in your thirties. Like, you know what needed to be longer? My twenty-two-year-old opinions." Yeah, and <laughs> I, I love really the, love the fake academic that. like intro. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The original DVD before the Criterion one, they had like this academic that they wrote the script for. To like explain like Why how they cut, they cut the movie yeah. and cut out all the boring bits and it's just like but it's, it's like brilliant. a four minute. Yeah. Wasn't it Woody Allen? He said like I can improve any movie sight unseen, make it shorter. Yeah, like, <laughs> most movies just make that shit shorter. Yeah, well, there you well, go. But moving forward, okay. we're only gonna be talking about movies that are three hours plus. And so I'm gonna start okay. with you, Carlo. 2006 at 180 minutes. This is the shortest movie I'm gonna ask about. David Lynch's Inland Empire. Too short, too long, or just right. From Hollywood, California, where stars make dreams and dreams make stars. You have a new role to play, I hear. Up for a role? No, no. I definitely heard that you have it. Action. Damn! This sounds like dialogue from our script. Cut, cut it. (laughs) What the bloody hell's going on? Our producers know the history of this film and they've taken it on themselves not to pass on that information to us. Purposefully. Something's wrong. Do you love me? It's a story that happened yesterday. But I know it's tomorrow. Don't you remember anything? How it was? Oh, man, I haven't seen it since it came out, and I've been meaning to revisit it, because this is another thing that we're probably going to go down is probably Twin Peaks. But um, uh, at that time, I saw it. I also saw it, like, at 11 at night. Um, I also I remember, too, he, he like, self-distributed that movie, so it was only playing in one theater in L.A. at that time. And I went to that theater, and I, like, had, like, the best experience. Because, you know, we brought this up before, Mikhail, but, like, this whole idea of like the perfect time to watch a movie is when you're on like the cusp of sleep, mm-hmm. like late at night. Well, certain movies, and I, certain movies. Yeah. So okay, the short answer would be, um, yeah, just right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like man can't even practice his own editing skills. I like it. No, it was one of Marcus Penn's all-time favorite movies, and yeah, I mean his website he, is named after. He's Pinland yeah. Empire, and I've seen yeah. it one and a half. First time I tried to watch it, I was like. 
it just so, did someone like change like the movie like, and the DVD? Like, is this like a like what the fuck's going on here? Then I and I tried again. Like, I'm, I must confess, it's I think it's a movie that is it eludes me. I'll never say it's a bad movie, yeah. but it is it it eludes my understanding. Whereas the rest of David Lynch's body of work just it's like waves of ecstasy just like rolling and washing over me but for whatever reason that movie is not but what about you Mikhail too long too short or just right but plea the fifth oh interesting plea the fifth like I said I might be willfully no this uh, I have a very difficult relationship with them it's funny that my favorite I think my favorite movie of all time is probably 18 hour Twin Peaks season 3 and uh, it's a really good movie I think it's the best movie I've ever fucking <laughs> that was my seen favorite, that was my favorite it, movie of 2000 I guess what was it yeah, 17 it was like two years ago now yeah, yeah 2017 like, yeah. Yeah, it was copy. on the top of a lot of people's lists actually yeah. that year yeah I mean obviously I it was you know it aired on TV and everything so I guess if you're a semantic motherfucker you know you could opt that that's not a movie uh, but yeah. I, I think it's I watched 10 hours of Twin Peaks in one sitting once and I think that that is some of the most magnificent filmmaking, writing, everything, soundscape, bullshit, acting, all, yeah. all in one, all in one. Like, in, you could be a fucking uh, pretentious asshole and like it, and you could be, I feel like anyone could really yeah. like it. That being said, I have a very difficult relationship with them, very hit or miss with Moses movies. I love Blue Velvet. I love Mulholland Drive. Um, but Eraserhead fucking was an ambient i was gonna go to sleep on it um i didn't know that he could make something like the elephant man which is like a disney-fied version of him and then he did make a disney movie but whatever uh wild at heart for some reason i couldn't get oh. into also lost highway i think's half a good movie so i usually either hate or love it or usually find him really boring or but i don't I love think him. any of those comments you just made are outrageous i mean they're all totally viable no no but as in like so i don't know where i'm gonna stay on inland empire which from what i hear is just like a really long uh video um uh, installation yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. i know carlo surely was fantastic so yeah <laughs> It has like moments of brilliance. In it. I do. I, will, I, I do want to watch that. it. Yeah. I will watch it. I mean, yeah, especially yeah. after Twin Peaks. I mean, yeah. a good place to start is his short um, film Rabbits. Like, oh, if you no, see that, I would highly no. I dispute that in a heartbeat. <laughs> like, I did watch Rabbits before thinking about watching Inland Empire, and I was like, well, yeah. if there's a ten minute fucking scene where rabbits are slowly walking, also not real rabbits, human sized no. rabbits with masks yeah, on, and they're just walking heads, around yeah. rabbit heads, and they're just walking around one shot for about 10, 15 minutes. No, Carlo. That's not how you pitch that fucking. But like his short film Alphabet, I think, is his best short movie. Or maybe the short film he did for the Lumiere and Company, like that nineteen ninety five. Oh, they yeah. did those like really short. Or you had to yeah. do a movie with just a cinematograph and make it at a minute or shorter. Yeah. His is yeah. so eerie and so beautiful and so mysterious. So he, I mean, he can do short movies really, really well. All right. Well, let's get current. Two thousand nineteen at one hundred and eighty one minutes. Carlo, Avengers Endgame. Too long, too <laughs> short, or just right. Oh my god, you're just lining this up for me. Like <laughs> too long. Of course. My god, all these superhero movies are too long. Why are they all hours? <laughs> I got to say Carl, I'm actually surprised you've seen it already. <laughs> I I waited a week and then like I well, I picked like a now. middle of a day screening, completely empty theater and I was just like, okay, like I don't know. I guess there's parts of me like why I guess I, I you know, we off record we we talked a little bit about Game of Thrones. Like I watched the highlights of it. It's like some way of I guess just like reconnecting with humanity somehow. It's like you know to be part. Got to stay. Got to stay current. Got to stay up to speed. Yeah, oh, part with Carlo, the human, man. part with the human experience. You know, so I, I went to see it and I didn't see Infinity War. I'll say that. So so it was so totally. Well, I mean, these are not complicated movies, but I will mm-hmm. say, it might have helped. <laughs> 
have you seen him in your? I will say this. Okay, so I do that too. I guess with the Marvel movies, I do highlights. Like if there's a movie that I'm not particularly interested in, and it's like, oh, I need to catch up before I see the next one. It's like, oh, what happened in this one? And it's like, it's just always like of little consequence. And I guess that was the good thing you about. You might be the one person on the planet who saw Endgame without having seen Infinity yeah. War. So this is actually a fascinating insight. Other than somebody's grandparent yeah. or, you know, parent who got dragged along by their kids. Like, it's like, let's go see this movie. Yeah, I'm probably the only person in their 30s who, like, saw it. <laughs> That's amazing. But, yeah. I, I love it. What yeah, you, Mikhail? Like, uh, have not seen it, but can confidently say, too Oh man! I am. I am gonna go. I'm probably gonna see it in like two weeks on a Sunday morning matinee with like a yeah. snuck in yeah, bottle of booze that. and a yeah, friend. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Berate people at Alamo with their kids. <laughs> yeah. I, when I went and saw it, there was a guy on a date right beside me, and I could tell the guy was so excited, but his date was unfamiliar with the the Marvel movies, and so he was oh, trying oh. to explain to her all the, the all, all the wonderful going. nuggets and nuance. And he was, but he's trying to keep her entertained because he's clearly trying to get laid that night. And he's trying to focus on this movie because it's opening yeah. night. I was like, you are just wrapping yourself in knots, trying trying to make this all happen. I was like, do one, like entertain your date, or enjoy the movie. But you can't do both can't at do once. Both. You, you're just killing yourself and killing me by virtue of sitting beside it. I recently was trying to tell. Uh, I, I saw Aquaman recently, which. Fuck it, man. I had a. I thought it was a. Who, I saw it a twice. Blast. I thought it was so silly. It wanted to be every like sci-fi fantasy studio movie from the last 10, 15 years in one. And fuck it, it did it. I yeah, loved it. It was I, fun. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. James Wan. No, James Wan's an entertaining. James Wan knows how to make a fucking yeah. good and saying temple yeah. flick. That being said, I recently was trying to explain Aquaman to Helen. She's like, "Well, who is he? What is he supposed to be a part of?" I'm like, "Well, you know, Batman, Superman." She's like. Wait a minute, wait a minute. But what is that? And I was like, let me ask you a simpler question so I know how long to go with this. Iron Man and Batman, have they been in the same movie? And I stared at her, and she went, dot, 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 yes? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm not going to explain any of it. That is the funniest thing I've heard. That's awesome. I love it. All right, well, let's switch, let's switch gears. I'm going to start with Mikhail on this one. 1975 at 185 minutes. Barry Lyndon. right nice. i love that movie is absolutely just right barry lynn and i watched about a year ago and i still want to do a podcast on it but barry anytime lynn, yeah. i love barry lynn barry lynn's i'll one be of those down things. for that too yeah i, I sure. for the longest time had a thing about like i call them kubrick bros i'm just like oh dude best filmmaker ever don't even touch yeah, he, like, there, there are plenty there are kubrick, kubrick, bros. There are kubrick yeah. bros out there but not every kubrick fan is a kubrick bro no no of course of yeah. course but like people are like oh fuck man like it's just like you know beatles created all the music i'm like cool but like i feel like there's some, there's some other, there's bands some other cool yeah. bands out there. But Barry Lennon for me was like, 
shit, now I gotta get this book, I gotta get this book, I gotta rewatch this movie, I gotta re-examine this, I gotta watch these video essays. Barry Lyndon for me was just perfect and also did not feel like a slog. Felt like it was mm-hmm. a very purposely uh, edited thing. And also we know with him, he is a meticulous motherfucker. So if it's in yeah. there, it's in there. There was a purpose for it. Mm-hmm. Carlo, what do you think? Well, I think you can predict what my answer would be. <laughs> yeah, it was just right. Uh, yeah, and I, the whole thing... I mean, you could say it's too short. Yeah, actually, I don't know <laughs> sometimes, man. <laughs> no, no, but with this one, it was just like, you know, it's that... It's one of the films that you probably get to last with Kubrick, right? Like, when you're ticking off the list. You have to, like, steal like, yourself up for That's definitely one like, of the oh, ones sure, that are well, at the bottom. That's the period one, you know? Yeah, but, like... Now it, it's it's kind of gone up because of, I guess, the Criterion release and, like, you know, it had, like, a remastered version. And now people, like, claim that they're, like, day one Barry Lyndon fans or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's so ridiculous. But, yeah, I remember, like, this was, you know, when I was, like, at that period of trying to just complete director's filmographies. And I finally got around to it. And I I just did not expect it to be that way because... I just hate period films in 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 general. Period. Like I can't yeah. stand like costume dramas, but somehow this one like there was something about it, and then also it helped when I saw like Martin Scorsese's like little bit on it in uh, his personal journey through American movies, where he just explains how like the emotion is carried more by the music, you know, and then like yeah, just the whole technical aspect of it, like you know, in how it kind of became that way because he was trying to make this bigger napoleon movie that fell apart and he just like pulled all his energies towards this and was like let's get these like lenses from nasa that can yeah. shoot like satellite and like let's uh and yeah i was just completely blown away by it but i will say that it was definitely more because of its technical achievements than like any kind of emotional heft like you know i think the the narration and everything like that kind of keeps you at a distance from Ugh, people keep saying that i don't know i feel like i had a I feel like for some reason I empathized with him, even though he was a complete douche nozzle. Well, I find the, the narration to be his, it's very dry, but it's love it. fucking funny. I think it's so. It's that, really yeah, that's funny. the other thing. I think the movie's really funny. Yeah. I think that first dude that he has to duel with early in the movie when we first are introduced <laughs> to him, yeah. and he's making these like pompous sort of posturings when he's marching with his troops, and he's kind of like you know like a snivelly looking bitch. That I thought the movie was just really really surprisingly funny and i think that's what warmed me up to it yeah i don't know especially since you know he has a tendency to like 2001 i guess you could look at that and be like dude you're a fucking cold rock of a man like there is no barry lennon's got some more some more heart to it but i think of all kubrick's films because when i was in college from 95 to 99 i was a giant kubrick just freak and i was probably a a little bit of a kubrick freak going into college because i'd already seen like full metal jacket and clock garden and stuff like that but no movie in his filmography has risen more in popularity in the interim, then Barry, Barry Lyndon was an obscure mm-hmm. movie. Like when you'd see the VHS right. in Blockbuster, it was this double box like mm-hmm. container, yeah. and you're like, "What the fuck is Barry Lyndon?" I'm never watching that movie ever. Yeah. And then I happened just to stumble into a screening of it at um, the New Beverly in L.A. And I just yeah, seeing it, you know, it wasn't necessarily the world's greatest print, but seeing it in the theater at the New Bev mm-hmm. totally changed me. And then I saw that Scorsese doc you're talking about, and it's probably the best yeah. like five minute rant on that the movie that's ever us. been ever been recorded. Yeah. And so yeah, Barry Lynn I think is one of his great movies. But I do think there is a of all the people out there that are Kubrick bros, I also think there's like millennial like Barry Lyndon bros who like like to pretend like oh I've always known it's his best movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, no, right, it's, yeah, it's yeah that's what I resent. Say it's, yeah. it's weird. My my buddy, <laughs> right. I recently told my buddy Sam, who I've known since high school, I'm like Barry Lyndon, you need to fucking watch it. I finally watched it. I know it's the only Kubrick movie you've never seen either. 
And he's like, dude, you t- you've been telling me since high school to watch. I'm like, that's fucking false. I just watched it for the... F-. So I had the reverse effect where everyone knows in my group of friends I'm such a film snob. They're like, no, you've always loved Barry Lyndon. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it is assumed. That's All right, funny. well, this is a, a topic that we actually have covered briefly in the past. But, Carlo, hmm. 1999 at 188 minutes. Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Too long, too short, Ooh, or just right? Just right for me. Like, yeah. It's just... um, I, I can't think of any bit to cut out of that film. Like, you know, you could say out of practicality, there's bits that you can cut out. But for me, like, it just contributes to the entire tapestry of the film. I mean, you know, I've talked at length about, like, the opening three, like, sequences of the film. And, like, that's something that I would just put on and watch again because it's just so good. The first five minutes Uh, of that movie is just in itself, like, such a director's cut move of, like, not starting with any of my fucking characters, just talking about probability for six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember, too, like, the interview with him around that time that the movie came out, and he was saying, like, yeah, I just wanted to make, like, the white album of movies where it's just, like, I'll start with, like, back in the USSR and just, like, throw everything off the cliff. Oh, and then, oh, I never Yeah, that, that was his idea nuts. behind the film. So, yeah, just uh, right. Hmm. I'm, a little, I'm a little bit more conflicted with this one. I think the scenes yeah. with, uh, what's his name, um, Jason... Jason with Philip Seymour, yeah, Roberts and uh, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think those could have used some slicing and dicing, which I know he was never going to do because it was about his like father dying with cancer and shit like right. that too. And also Jason Robards was died. on his way out of here as well. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah, obviously like you know, pay tribute to him. He has mm-hmm. also himself said, as an older man, yes, I could easily take twenty minutes out of that movie, and it was made in his fucking twenties, so he wouldn't. Was it twenty nine or so when he did it? Or? He was yeah, twenty nine. Yeah, he, yeah. he was just about to hit his thirties, which is yeah. fucking terrible to think about oh, as just a thirty one year old man. Well, just when you see, I mean, some people are just put on this planet to make movies. Like when you see Steven Soderbergh winning the Golden Palm at twenty six, like twenty six, first fucking like film. I could barely do my laundry when I was twenty six. Like what, oh, yeah. winning the fucking Golden Palm? What are you talking about? But some people just. They are. They come right. roaring out of the gate early on. I mean, that's a whole other podcast of just like <laughs> yeah. young men who <laughs> make you feel terrible about yeah. yourselves. <laughs> or like when like, like F. Scott Fitzgerald like riding the Great Gatsby when it was like his mid twenties, like Jesus fucking Christ! Like, I- well, he drank himself to death. <laughs> yeah, true, very true. <laughs> Alrighty, well, next on the list, and this is a movie I've not seen in well over twenty years, but at one hundred and ninety-three minutes from nineteen eighty-three, Mikhail asked you about this Philip Kaufman's film, The Right Stuff. I've never watched it, never had any interest in watching it. It's gotcha. the astronaut movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no. I, put, put Men on the Moon. I, I, well, it I, starts I, with Breaking the Sound Barrier, and it's obviously it's a Tom Wolfe novel adaptation. I read the first five pages because I was at a buddy's place just sleeping over, and he had a copy of it. The book was really good. So the book's very entertaining. I, I have to plead the fifth on this one, unfortunately. All right, well, I, I, I'll just uh, offer my own two cents. I think the book is vastly superior, and it's a weird thing where this movie was a fucking event when it came out. Like, people went berserk. But honestly, all I can watch from it, the only parts that I like are the Chuck Yeager sequences. I really like the Chuck Yeager sequences. Everything else just feels like it needs another pass. It needs another month or two in the editing room. But, Carlo, you have any strong feelings about the right stuff? No, yeah. I, I'm also, like, just completely agnostic to it. I haven't seen it. Like, you know, uh, I mean, it's it's one of my dad's favorite movies, so I can always borrow his, like, Blu-ray of it. But, like, I just never felt inclined to. But yeah. you would have thought that it was fucking Lawrence of Arabia from the way people talked about it when it first came out. I mean, it was everywhere. It was like a cultural hand grenade. And it was just really? it was such a big deal. And you guys are a lot younger than I am. Have any of your friends ever even mentioned this movie? 
I know. Again, I am. I'm the guy who everyone told me I saw Barry Lyndon. So. <laughs> no, I've never. Nope. I've never spoken to anyone. I think that's one of those things that's was very much generational. I, guess. I think for people who are ten years my elder, they're probably really big on it. Well, that's one of those things too. Of like, I. Uh, I mean, I just don't have anyone who is like ten, twenty years. When growing up, especially like ten, twenty years older than me, who wasn't like recommending some Russian comedy I'd never fucking heard of. You know, and I needed the title translated for me or something. So I, I, I feel like that's, it's the same way I always talk about when people are like, "Oh, you ever see the Goonies? Man, you haven't seen the Goonies?" And I was like, "No, bro, watch the." I don't know why there's so many bros in my impressions today, but bro, you gotta see Goonies. I'm like, dude, I wasn't ten when I saw. You know, I was, I didn't see it at ten. I'm not gonna see it as a thirty-one. I was ten when I saw Goonies. I was, mm-hmm. I, I, it was, Goonies was made for me. It was made for me and my friends yeah. at that time. I don't watch Goonies ever. No, no, no. Of course and, yeah, not. And I don't think mm-hmm. I've seen Goonies since like. Maybe one or two years after it came out, I saw a ton on HBO, and I'm glad I did. I had a blast each and every single time. I will never watch Goonies. But you know how many people like? Yeah, most people haven't seen Goonies since they were kid. They insist on yelling at me for not seeing it as an adult. I'm like, you rewatch fucking Goonies, and then you tell me how it is. (laughs) Now, if you want to watch a Richard Richard Donner movie, watch fucking Lethal Weapon. Yeah, Lethal Weapon has aged very well. Um, But also, because you know what it is, I usually get into that argument with uh, Princess Bride. People were like, you gotta see Princess Bride. My like, second <sighs> date movie ever. I wish it was my first, but my first date movie ever. Ernest goes to fucking camp. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that still is, that holds in the zeitgeist somewhat. Yeah, like, but movies and dates are very important. And I always think of like, oh, what was my first kiss? Like, what was the first time I touched a girl's boob? Like, I know they answer all these questions, but my, my second date movie ever was Princess Bride. But it would be so much better if it was my first date movie ever, because it is so romantic. Right. I started yeah. dating late, man. My first date movie was Simpsons the Movie. <laughs> I was wow. 19 or something. Wow. All right, well, Carl, this is a question yeah. for you. I don't know if you've seen it, right. because it's pretty obscure, but I feel like this is a movie that like, is like teed up to be your favorite movie of all time. 1974, 193 minutes, from Jacques Rivette, Celine, and Julie Go Boating. Oh, shit, dude. All right, okay, this is why oh, I'm, I'm not spot. predictable, I guess, and I can be dubious. I actually think it's too long. Oh, interesting. <laughs> all right, elaborate, elaborate. Okay, so, I mean, Jacques Rivette, like... I have kind of a, uh, I guess, uh, an ambivalent feeling with him, you know, as a filmmaker. Like, I really admire him. That's not even his longest movie. You know, his longest no, no, movie. No, 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 that, that's, that's coming Out up one? later. That's, yeah, that's coming oh, up yeah, right, okay. later. It's the rest yeah, of his right. list for but, Carlo. Uh, it's, all, it's all Jacques Rivette films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's, he's notorious for his long films. And I don't know, like, this film is actually really hard to find, especially in the U.S. Like, there's no, like, DVD release of it. Like, you can only find, like, the... twice back in colleges and undergrads. I was taking a French film class, and the the, the library had, uh, yeah, just happened to have it on VHS. It was a crummy version, but I I have seen it twice. But it's been over 20 years. Yeah, and I remember, like, when they showed it at MoMA. Oh, no, sorry, the Museum of Moving Image in Queens. Like, it was a big deal. Like, the screenings were sold out. They had to add more uh, screenings because it was just so hard to come across. And so, you know, it, it was built up with that much hype for me. So when I when I finally got to see it, like, I was just like, man, like, what is this? Like, it's just, a, it, it, it's like two two movies, like two separate movies, basically. And like, kind of, uh, well, yeah, I don't, I don't. I feel like it thing. wants to be Daisies, but Daisies <laughs> is like 80 minutes. Well, wait, yeah. The Czech and, New Wave movie? Yeah, yeah, but, how does it want to be that, but then go ahead and is like three hours? Because what's well, it, well, about? It's just like kind of wild, fantastic adventure with these two kind of pixie chicks. But Daisies is, I think, vastly more well, successful. Was it like the same energy well, level? Was very experimental. Like yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, but you see, that's the thing. I feel like with that kind of energy, you can't make Daisy's a three and a half hour movie because then all of a sudden it just becomes a blur of shit. It's just like, yeah. there's a reason why picaresque novels were typically 90 to 100 pages long, except for like Don Quixote or some shit. Because yeah. just bouncing from one thing to the next, there's like, it's weird in that by not giving something a pace, you're just all over the place. It doesn't give it a focus. It doesn't give it anything. I feel like, oh, now that you describe it as like a Daisy's but three hours plus, of course that can't fucking work. That would be right. exhausting. And I mean, it's just like even the title, right? Like they don't even go boating until like the second hour. <laughs> like, or almost like into the third hour, actually. Like they start go to go boating. But it's not only that. It's actually the other reason why it's kind of lessened in my estimation is because there's this other filmmaker that I really admire, um, Roel Ruiz. And he just does this fantastical thing much better. Like, it's not as heavy-handed as Rivette. Like, I just feel like with Rivette, his films, like, clunk, you know? And I don't mind that sometimes because, you know, it's, like, the the price of ambition, I guess, that he's always trying to do something different with each film. But, like, a, another obscure film of his that I actually prefer is um, Up, Down, Fragile. And I think it's also, like, uh, almost three hours. Like, it's an almost three-hour musical. And then the first musical number doesn't even happen until, like, an hour and a half in. <laughs> what a withholding so it's like, yeah that's like the what kind of filmmaker he was but you know i mean since he's died and you know they've released that box set of his films the like criterion, I, yeah. um no i think it's arrow that released his um the oh, box wow. set of his films but yeah there is the criterion of paris belongs to us but mm. yeah it's just like i i yeah with revette like there's just something where his movies just don't go down smoothly well i've me. seen like, a lot of Truffaut, and i've seen a lot of godard and i've seen a few claude chabral and i've, I've seen you know, i've seen you know, a fair amount of french new wave films but with jacques rivette i'm nearly a blank slate because of i'm just intimidated by the length but once again i was taking a french cinema class we were assigned mm-hmm. this and i saw i watched it once when we were assigned it and i watched it once before the final exam but i don't think i, I don't feel compelled to revisit it yeah. but i, I but I, I thought i assumed and rightfully so that you had seen it so you did not disappoint yeah. no yeah <laughs> well so there you go like, what is it uh are you well uh, carlo i guess this is interesting to ask you too carlo because you're getting yeah. older and older and we are all losing energy and that's inevitably we, yeah we decompose so <laughs> right. do you are you finding yourself a little bit more um exhausted when you look at a runtime and you're like oh fuck i don't i don't know uh, i will say that if it's a blockbuster movie for sure yeah if i see it on a blockbuster movie that is over two hours i'm just like i become a curmudgeon and i'm just like what like you know and it and it always ends up being justified i when i see it i'm just like yeah that was too long like i could cut out so many parts in it but I mean, like, there is a big movie coming out this summer that's 14 hours long that I am excited for, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> La Flor by uh, Mariano Linas, Linas, I think his name is Argentinian Carlo's film. so excited that he's saying all this from the floor. He can't even sit straight anymore <laughs> for this 14-hour fucking movie. Yeah, they, they even did, like... Um, oh, yeah, you've been talking to me about joke. this shit all fucking year long, actually. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they did... <laughs> And they did this April Fool's joke where they said, okay, we're releasing a 42-minute version of the film just so for the people who don't have 14 so hours. So Carlo and five other people laughed across the world. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's crazy that they're releasing it like smack in the middle of summer. And uh, it's going to be like, uh, I think you have the option to like buy a package because it's going to be three separate setting, um, sittings. So it's like, I think 
Uh, first day will be five hours. Second day will be five hours, and then the last day is four hours. So let me so ask you, you something about that, though. That that's yeah. that's interesting because, like, yeah. is it any more one long movie? Like, if you're doing a movie in yeah. sittings, why why are you not just watching a TV show? You're watching it in installments. Why is it not right. three movies? If they've separated to five, you know yeah. what? The director knew he wanted to make fourteen hour movie. How did he yeah. decide, well, where am I going to cut it because no one's going to sit down and watch 14 hours? When do you start yeah. thinking to yourself in the metaphysical way of like, is this a movie? Am I making a movie anymore? I tell right. everyone I made a 14-hour movie, but people are watching it five hours a time. David Lynch, yeah. here we are all sitting that it was an 18-hour movie, but we didn't watch all 18 hours at once. Jimmy, you no. watched it from week to week when it came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, loved every second. Yeah. But it's weird but because a book doesn't stop being a book when you read it in pieces. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah. it's a right. movie stop being a movie and watch it in pieces. And obviously this is a... At the heart of the big like Netflix versus con debate, Netflix versus the Oscars debate, or anything like, streaming, should anything streaming be yeah. considered a movie at all? And it's one of the things like it's like pornography. You know it when you see it. Like for me, the, Twin Peaks: The Return is pure raw cinema, even though it was made for TV. And but so TV is becoming more and more cinematic. Yeah. So well, the lines are obviously right. becoming increasingly blurry, and in the definition of what is what because obviously the tools yeah. and the technique are largely the same. So it's like, mm -hmm. why are we so kind of, I don't know, nitpicky about which is which? It's just, it's visual storytelling. I don't know, I guess there's something maybe... But cinema just has like a, a weight and an importance to it. Because I would, yeah. because at the same time, I, I don't know, I would never call Game of Thrones, um, uh, you know... I would never um, call it a movie, no. Uh, yeah. Obviously, because there's, maybe it's that whole thing because Twin Peaks, you literally can go from one episode to the next and you don't really... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not structured well, episodically, and also except to give it like, credits. What's well, got like, the, the closing TV, yeah. music bits? Like, it definitely right. has this great. I mean, because the, the closing music bits were some. Of my I, favorite I mean, parts when of Dougie's it. standing underneath the statue, and there's that just like weird '80s quiet sax playing while he's just like fondling the foot of the cowboy <laughs> statue. Yeah, <laughs> I could. I I have watched that over and over again, and that's just a fucking so end credit sequence. Well. Um, yeah, I don't want to diverge too much into that because I want to answer your question. But um, but it would be just yeah, like a director's I, cut to diverge. No, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll book I'll, I'll bookmark that. But like I'll I'll just say with like I guess in terms of Mariano Linus's films because he's only made two uh, major well, features. So 14, um, the other film is uh, is actually also four hours long. Uh, so it's pretty long. It's called um, Extraordinary Stories, and it's really hard to come by. Actually, you can. Only, like, I think it was streaming on Fandor for a second, and then, yeah, it's just gone. But um, the whole thing with it is that his style, which I would relate probably to, like, Italo Calvino, is, like, these, this multiplicity of narrative. Italian writer, you mean? Yeah, the yeah, novels? Calvino. Yeah. Like, If on a Winter's Night, mm -hmm. A Traveler. Maybe even Borges to a certain extent. And uh, it's just, like, these intersecting narratives that happen. And yeah, there is like an episodic aspect of it, but it's just like something about like, I guess uh, this is something that one of my favorite filmmakers says, like James Benning, is like that you have a contract with your audience, you know? So it's like preparing you for something, because there's actually another super long movie that's getting like a 4K restoration that I really love called um, Satan Tango, and that's seven and uh, a half yeah, hours. Yeah, that's, um, what's his name? Uh, Bella. Bella, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I've those, never seen a single Bellatar movie because, no, of, but, because, because of the those length. fucking runtimes. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> and they're also like <laughs> severe in black and white. 
I mean, I invited you, Mikhail, to Metrograph when they had uh, Werkmeister harmonies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know where, what theater yeah. I want to sit at for more than 30 minutes? Yeah, fucking with Metrograph those, with, with those, those wooden plank torture devices. Yeah, the, the, the chairs at Metrograph are, are fucking murderous. All right, well, we're going to move no. ahead to the next one, which is 1965, 197 minutes. The follow-up to Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, starring the great... Omar Sharif and Julie Christie. Carlo just got confused. Well, Carlo yeah, had a. Dinner. I'm assuming you've heard of Dr. Zhivago. I look like Carlo just bit into something yeah, better. You looked like you. Like, yeah. That looked like a, like Dr. Zhivago. Or like Carlo just realized he has diarrhea on its way. <laughs> yeah, that's what was happening. This movie was a commercial smash in spite of its prodigious length upon its initial right. release. I think it gets watched less and less with each passing year, but. In 1965, it was. I haven't year. watched it. I'm dubious of watching. Uh, like my that's... mom was 15, 14 when it came out and saw it like multiple times. Like it's, it's like when you look at movies that were considered mainstream, accessible entertainment in the mid 60s, and then compare that to like Avengers: Endgame, it's like what like Russian Revolution, like period drums, like what the fuck? How is that mainstream entertainment? It just shows how well, much audiences taste. I mean, that, that, because years. to them that was like with their special effects and everything though, but those were the sagas, those were yeah. the epics, mm. those were the, yeah, Prestige no. dramas, like prestige mm. dramas do not exist on the big screen at all anymore. When's the last time you yeah. saw a, like a, a three and a half hour period costume piece? I mean, I feel like James Gray is always like James. I feel like that's a, <laughs> a dream of his to maybe shoot a three and a half hour Visconti type flick or something. Right? Shit, you yeah, know? like his version of the Leopard. I mean, Lost City of Z. He was starting to like, I guess, dabble in yeah. that. Yeah. Like, or the Immigrant mm, even. Sure. Lost City of Z vanished. It just completely disappeared. Oh, I, yeah. yeah. Which is and we're big nice. fans of that movie. Yeah, I was. A we love Lost City of Z. Yeah. Um, I have not seen it. Actually, this is the thing. Like, I'll say it right now before you go down further on your list, James. It's like, um, uh, yeah, there's this game called Humiliation, I think. Like, it's a literary parlor game that this author, David Lodge, invented where it's like you list, like, all the classics you haven't read. Oh, gotcha. And whoever has, like, the longest list loses. I think that should win. (laughs) 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 But, um... Because uh, I was yeah, an English so, major, uh, and I largely ignored, like, 95% of my assignments. So, yeah, so yeah I, I would love to play could, that game. Yeah, that could apply to movies, too. You can apply that game. And they're actually, surprisingly, as much movies as I've seen, like, I've avoided a lot of classics. So I haven't seen Dr. Shivago. I haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia. And I haven't seen Gone with the Wind. And these are, like, Well, Gone the with the legend. Wind is considerably longer, so it's way lower on the list. So yeah, Gone with the Wind <laughs> is very timely and tough. Movie. <laughs> right. so well, I'll just say about Dr. Javago that I think it is one one-hundredth the movie that is Lawrence of Arabia. I saw it in 70mm at the El Capitan Theater on Hollywood Boulevard in L.A. Pristine, like, gloriously, perfectly restored print. Mm. And while Julie Christie's one of the most beautiful creatures who's ever lived, and Omar Sharif is probably the most suave human being to ever step in front of a camera, there's just, it's inert. Like, all the negative stereotypes about historical epics are at play in Dr. Zhivago, whereas for me, Lawrence of Arabia flows, and one flows and one doesn't. And so, yeah, I, I will continue to watch Lawrence of Arabia throughout the rest of my life. Dr. Zhivago, I think I might be one and done. Yeah, Dr. Zhivago, there's a reason I haven't watched it. I mean, I'm always doing... Lawrence of Arabia, I watched because we were going to do a podcast, and I think that was still one that also, was Also, we got, to, we got to see it at Museum of the Moving Image. Which was great. Mm. I, I mean, I, the first... I, before the, tr- uh, the... I got the intermission, I was having trouble with it, but then after that, for some reason, it just kicked into a higher gear, and I really, like, flowed with it. 
there is something about a period piece from that time and you're gonna tell me it's over three hours long i'm just not gonna those are every single box on my checklist was just mm. fucking ticked i'm not gonna watch it especially when i know the problematic nature of that book since it was only released in a time when books weren't really released unless the government allowed it to be released. Uh, so I just know it's going to be fucking trash to begin with. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to bother reading the fucking book at any point, even right. though I'm really into Russian literature, just because that's, you know, the fucking part of the world I came from. So all of mm. that is just like a perfect storm of a movie I know I will never fucking watch before well, I die. That's uh-huh. the next podcast I'm going to invite you to participate on. <laughs> all right, so we're going to wind the clock way back to more than 100 years ago now at 197 mm. minutes. 1916, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, his answer to Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Birth of a Nation, I watched that for a class, Intolerance didn't happen for me. Oh, I think it's just right. Like, I mean, it's my favorite. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. that's, that's a shocker. I love it, that's, that's great. I'm, yeah, the ambition of that film is just, wow. Like, you know, I mean, I still see, like, um, those... Uh, What's the Babylon sequence? Yeah, like they moved Babylon, those like giant elephants. gigantic pillars of those elephants. They're like in this mall across in, the street from El Capitan Theater. That's where those locations. Hollywood right. and Hollywood and Highland was where the yeah. location was of Babylon. Right, and it's just like to see that scale, and then you know to see him film that with like all these people. It's just like wow. Like I mean, I'm still blown away by that film. Like every time I see it, and just the fact that he was juggling. I mean, I'm a big fan of like juggling like multiple storylines and like drawing parallels with them. And like for somebody to even think that it's like, oh, let's do like subtle connections, like let's set them in different periods of time. And like, you know, it's not necessarily like things are actually repeating themselves. And I mean, another film from that era, probably, I guess, almost a decade later that came out, which is also notorious for having like a super long cut, but it it got like destroyed by MGM was uh, Greed. Yep. By... uh, on Stroheim. Love it. And yeah, and it's just like that kind of megalomaniac type of filmmaking that I was just like completely blown away. I'll never watch Birth of a Nation just because of the KKK stuff, but like, uh, you know, that's just like more of you a You don't want to watch a movie that was used as a recruitment tool for the KKK? This is now, bro. The bro's back. Yeah, as much as like Scorsese, like it's cinematic value. It's just like, you know, I mean, I even have a hard time watching like the Buster Keaton shorts where he's like doing blackface and stuff like, you know, so I don't know how I, I can really like, it's more, I think a personal issue with mine to separate that. But like if intolerance was kind of like the atonement for that, like what a way to do it. Well, I mean, was it, like, it, it well, to a degree. I mean, I think he was, he had, cause he was had, the average that big? He I had mean, soaring ambition, but I think most of the pushback against birth of a nation came much later but it is a movie about the history of human cruelty, a movie about the history of human intolerance, and the ambition of setting it in four. I mean, now you watch a movie like or a show like Dark, the the German thriller on uh, Netflix, and it's you know this great murder mystery that takes place in three different time periods, and the cross cutting between the three periods is like a, a, a just the stuff of brilliance. But here we are, in 1916, with like a, a fucking three and a half hour movie cross cutting between four different periods at a time where a lot of people didn't even know what cross cutting was. Like, I mean, he helped like yeah, that, that's a tool that we take for granted now but the idea of being able to show two different things at the same time people thought oh yeah. the audience would just be too confused they can't keep track of it. Like, what are you talking about and he's like no fuck you I'm going to take movies to some place they've never been before and so once again what Carlos said just the ambition of intolerance alone makes it mm. one of the towering cinematic achievements of that period I'm a, big, I'm a big fan to begin with of movies that are ambitious that most other people like 
and most people really scoff at this movie, but all I kept thinking of when you guys were talking about different times and everything, and only subtle connections was Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas being yeah. a oh, similar, yeah. <laughs> like, and say what you will about the makeup and everything. Right. I don't, there's something so bold about, like, like three quarters of it I loved. I was like, fuck, I mean, they yeah. made, like, that's a movie, really, they were allowed to fucking make this movie and made no fucking money or anything yeah. along those lines, but shit, man, they thought they would get away with making Halle Berry white and Tom Cruise Samoan black, whatever the fuck he is as a, <laughs> uh, like, weird read, yeah, brawler read. author guy. Yeah. And, like, fucking God bless, man, that's bold. Will this, right. be, will this be the thing that my kids tell me I'm racist for loving down the line? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, and then I'll be quiet about it then. But it was a weird It's our generation's strange... birth of a nation. Yeah. Well, that's a, a weird, weird thing. But that, that's a, that is a very current thing where, like, in order to play something, you have to be something. And I love how Elton John recently was reacting to the Rocketman controversy that the star playing Elton John is um, not gay. Not and he's gay. like, yeah. I'm sorry, everybody, but that's bullshit. I was like, all right, thank you. The guy that the What's movie acting? is based on, like, actors are allowed to, like, if a 90-year-old man with balls down to his knees wants to put on a one-man show where he plays a six-year-old girl, it might not be good, but he should be allowed to make the attempt without everybody calling him whatever name I comes think the to idea, mind. The, the, the bigger concern should be, like, who, and whoever this source is derived from is, mm. in the audition, who's giving me the most honest thing? Like, if I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't know, I'm sorry, I'm just believing this person more. Right. I mean, who knows? Maybe the whole casting team was straight, and they're like, oh, I guess this is a gay guy. Yeah. <laughs> gay well, bros. If, but, if, uh, if your goal is we need more gay representation in movies, I think everybody can get on board with that. Yeah. But it's execution and tactics matter. And so, like, no matter how noble your intentions might be, if you start saying, well, you're not allowed to do something when you're making a movie about yourself, because Elton John produced the fucking movie, it's like, oh, well, now we've just gone into a really... Weird well, I'm sure, I'm sure he's had. I'm sure he had a lot of say over it too, because he's made Hollywood a lot of money. So yeah. I'm sure, like Lion King mm. was a huge fucking hit. Dude, he was in fucking yeah. uh, Kingsman Two, The Golden Circle. Like Elton John, he's, right. he's still a, he's still a player. So, <laughs> but I don't want to get too, too, too derailed on social justice when we've got too many big fucking movies still to discuss. So theatrical cut, 201 minutes from 2003, Peter Jackson's Return of the King, which swept the Oscars and made a lot of money.
Gun. itself before it became a bloated extent. First of all, it was already a director's cut when it came out in theaters. It didn't need yep. anything added to it. It was already too long. It already had 50 fucking endings tagged to it, tagged to the end of it. First <laughs> yeah. of all, okay, my I think the biggest crime of that fucking movie, director's cut, regular cut, is that one scene where Frodo is convalescing and he's finally feeling better. And so everyone, for some reason, runs into the room one at a time to play in on, slow motion. To play on the bed. <laughs> to play on the bed, yes. <laughs> And then we you get see it, Pippin's playing. He's like bouncing and falling over. Yeah, and then we see another. Yeah, it's like they might as well have feathers flying from the fucking sky in slow motion. Might as well get naked. And then there's uh. another goodbye right after that. Like Frodo, you're going across the ocean. You might as well be dead. It's just so. Yes, the director's cut of that movie was already a director's cut. So it's just a super director's cut. And it's I think Fellowship of the Ring has probably got the best runtime, and it seems like the most. I don't know. For me, it's always fair. been my favorite of the trilogy. For, for me, I've been partial to two towers. Yeah, the just peaks because of the battle of Return of the yeah. King. I really like. I think as a movie, it's got a lot of the dead weight. Obviously, two towers, Helm's Deep sequence is yeah. a thing of beauty. But as a just a a movie going experience, I think Fellowship of the Ring is the strongest. And also, Fellowship of the Ring has the most practical effects. It has the most stuff that was shot on location. They, they basically front loaded the shoot. Yeah, Fellowship of the yeah. Ring works the best, but there are scenes in Return of the King that make my my, my heart leap out of my body I mean, with the, joy. The thing I will argue is, I mean, I had a problem with, uh, not the two towers. Wait, yeah, it is the two towers. The not the twin towers. Um, yeah. The two towers. I actually, when I was younger, I remember loving it the most because I, I think it was the first movie that uh, gave me a sense of dread. Like, I, you weren't... Mm. It was one of the first movies I was like, I'm not confident that all the heroes are going to make it out of this war. Right. Also, we'd never seen a war scene like that before, those special effects and everything like that. Mm. My biggest problem with that is, A, I, I think out of all the director's cuts, Return of the King already I had issues with, but out of those, the first two, I think the director's cut just put even more meat on something that I didn't really need. And also, mm. that movie, whenever there was an opportunity to fucking bring in a DVD towards the end of school because we had enough time to watch movies and classes... It was always some fucking dude bringing in two towers, and I was watching it for the sixth fucking time in a week. And it's always the first oh, half of the movie because classes were 45 minutes long. So mm. I've seen the first 45 minutes of two towers maybe 10 times. So I'm done with that. Oh, fuck. crap. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I, I, I don't know who would actually lean towards like saying that it's too short or it's just right. I mean, yeah, uh, I definitely lean towards too long. I mean, the image that I have in my head um, that I always like kind of was proud of was on my DVD shelf. Like I would have the extended versions of Fellowship and Two Towers. And then it was the slim version of Return of the King, like as the third <laughs> DVD. But the thing that I'm interested in, actually, that you guys have inadvertently brought up about this is just like this this sense of goodwill, right? Like, because of the first two movies, it's just like, okay, I'm along with the ride for the third film. And, like, I, I wonder if that's also the case with all these other movies that we've been talking about that are super long that we kind of are partial to is because they develop a sense of goodwill. Or even, like, in my case, like, I guess one of my important criteria for, for films that I love is that it has to kind of cast a spell on me. You know, it's like I'm lulled into its, like, kind of its world and, its like, rhythms, yeah. that ambience that it's creating and like you know all of those things like to kind of draw me in that like when you know it, it's going on for too long or like shit happens in the third act that like i'm not really a fan of i'm like well you've developed enough goodwill for me to like stay with this film 
long enough. Yeah. I don't know. I don't walk out on movies or really stop them though. So I feel like um, <laughs> I walk out on movies at the drop of a hat. Life is Have short, and, and, movies and, and movies are long, or some movies are long. And it's one of those things where at age forty-two, there's probably more time behind me than in front of me. I'm not wasting a second out of some what like. You, what, was, what have you walked, you walked out, out on? Out of, yeah, I'm curious. Though. Yeah, yeah. I'm what curious. have I walked out on recently? Uh, well, it's because of my YouTube channel now. If I go, there's probably a good chance that I'm doing because I want to do a review on the channel. So then I feel like, oh, well, if it's for like work, work, then I should stay just so I can review it in its entirety. I kind of sort of walked out of The Last Jedi just to take a break. At one point, Last Jedi, I was falling asleep. I was like, you know what? I'm the first gonna... time you saw it, though? Yeah, yeah. I, I left it th- when they're in the giant casino sequence. I left the theater yeah. for a little while and went <laughs> and got the biggest Coke they could sell and a giant thing of popcorn. I was like, I'm just going to stuff my face with fuel and maybe that'll make me feel better and then I'll be more <laughs> p- happy while watching the rest of the I've movie. Done I've done one of those before. I, walked, uh, I didn't walk out. I had to go use the bathroom for Thor 2. Dark world, Turn off yeah. the lights or whatever the fucking problem was in that movie. And I walked <laughs> to the bathroom. Then I was like, you know what? I'm not enjoying that movie. I'm going to call my brother and see how he's doing. And then I just walked around the lobby of the theater for nice. about 15, 20 <laughs> minutes talking to my brother about his life. And then walked back into Thor. And guess what? It still sucked. Yeah, the movies that I have walked up that I remember, like the movie Cradle Rock from like 99 or 2000. I walked out of that. Even though like, mm. it's got like Orson Welles and like, it was like a topic that I should have like, been really into. Mm. Yeah. And I also walked out of uh, Tim Burton's film uh, Big Fish. Which was just it was it was it was New Year's Day. I was hungover as hell. I was like, this movie is beyond retarded. I'm gone yeah. and never to return. And I'm trying to think, what else have I watched? Well, what was out? like the, the oh I, recently the big the big um the big Pixar movie a couple of years ago was it Inside Out? But like oh Inside, Inside Out like 30 minutes in, I was like, I'm gonna murder myself and everyone else in this theater and make the news if I don't leave immediately. Why? I'm gone. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I, mean, I still haven't seen. It. I'm oh, I love it. <laughs> I, fi- I found it. Like I mean, everything I loathe and despise about just really nauseatingly sweet movies made for kids. Mm. Yeah, I had just a, a this like feeling of revulsion while watching Inside Out. And whenever I was saying it was the best movie Pixar had ever made, I felt very yeah. out of touch with the rest of the world. Yeah, and I guess like returning to this idea of like building a sense of goodwill with films, and I guess the the other thing it touches upon is forgiveness. And I guess for me the the framing effect that that had was that Pixar hadn't made a good movie in a while mm. and uh, up until that point that it came out. So I was like, oh, man, it, it may have been just that. Like, it was that effect of, like, man, like, finally they're they're making something original. It's not a sequel, and it's, like, actually drawing me in. And I, I'm, I'm drawn to those concepts of um, cognitive psychology anyway. So like, those, those things drew me in. But, like, yeah, I understand why some people don't like it. And, yeah, the score was pretty bad for the, the film. Like, it was very... Saccharin. All right, well, we've, already, we've already touched on it briefly, but just just because it's in our order of operations. But two hundred two minutes, nineteen seventy four, Godfather Part Two. Any final words on Godfather Part Two? Since Carl, you seemed very big on it. Uh, it's just perfect. Yeah, it's a perfect film. I'm I've always wanted to see though the version that Walter Murch like re-edited with both films, like Part One and Part Two. Oh, it's terrible. Have, have it's you... atrocious. Oh, it's terrible. Okay. Well, no, but there, there are a lot of people. Who, there are a lot of people who defend it, but it basically takes Godfather One and Two and edits it all chronologically. It's like, oh. no, oh, fuck no. you. Yeah. The beauty of Godfather <laughs> Two is the cross cutting back and forth between right. Michael so just, and yeah, exactly. Vito. Remember that the DVD special feature of. Um, of Memento, where it's like if you, you went can, through the questions yeah. correctly, you could watch the movie chronologically. <laughs> oh, so you right. mean like take a movie and if you could like just make it a hundred percent more boring? Cool. <laughs> yeah, let me watch that fucking flick. 
That defeats the entire purpose of structuring and like. Wait, why? Okay, did it'd be you like do watching that? Pulp Fiction sequentially. Yeah, yeah but like, why didn't Walter Merch do that? Uh, yeah, exactly. They did it for like, TV, would, and people, love, a lot of people, their first TV. exposure to Godfather yeah. is seeing it sequentially on TV, and it makes me want to weep. Yeah. Just that, that is yeah, so it was edited very for TV, right? Yeah, it wasn't really meant for theaters. It was for TV, so it was like kind of a mini series. But did he um, want it to happen, or was he just hired to do it? Like these are the questions. Uh, I don't know. That... And then the whole fact that like the timing of it too was just like they were because it was done in the nineties, I think. So they were already like kind of just ignoring part three. Like because it was just like yeah, they were trying to I guess cover it up somehow. So it's like, oh yeah, these these are the only true Godfather movies is the first and the second. So yeah. Yeah. I mean I think Godfather Two is perfect. I think Godfather the One is perfect. They're different. They're totally different. They're very and, different movies. But uh my my heart is full knowing that both of them are there to be enjoyed whenever I want. So alright, next one. Two hundred and twelve minutes. Ben motherfucking her. Fuck no, I didn't watch that. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Talk about yeah, all, I haven't the, seen all it either, the boxes actually. on my checklist that I ticked off as to a movie I've never yeah. fucking watched in my life. Not even the chariot <laughs> sequence? Uh, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of it like, over the course of my life, and it looks fucking dope. There, Yeah, there are a couple things that look fucking fatal and deadly, but... I mean, sure, I'll check them out on YouTube. Not going to watch the fucking movie. Not watch the movie. I would also urge people, not necessarily to put it at the top of their to-do list, because I found it to be a little excessive in length, but the chariot sequence is a special piece of filmmaking. But one thing, but it's like 10 minutes. You can watch that. It's just... You, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Yakima Kanut is one of the all-time great uh, stuntmen. Like, if you watch Stagecoach, he's the guy jumping along the horses. He's the mm. guy who goes underneath the carriage or underneath the stagecoach. Like, he is... Total stud, and he was the, he eventually graduated to stunt coordinator, and his son would do his stunts for him, and so they teamed up to do Ben Hur. Wow. All the chariot sequences is Yakima Kanut. It's probably his finest, finest hour. So for that, if you're a stunt buff, mm. Ben Hur is required viewing at least for that. Well, stay, okay. I've seen Stagecoach, and that does have some yeah. amazing like stunt work on it. Right. But I mean, I'll I'll dig up that scene. But again, everything mm-hmm. else about it. Also, now we're throwing in the fucking. You know, like we're getting like a little biblical in that era. And no, shit. Like, <laughs> Jesus is in it. Yeah, Jesus is in it. Yeah. All, yeah, all right. I'm, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it's just like not my lane, like that. those types of films. But I am a big fan of CinemaScope. Like there is a thing about CinemaScope and like how it came about, you know, as like, I guess a remedy against uh, TV was like, oh, watch everything much wider. No, I said 1950 yeah. earlier. That's a total mistake. Uh, quick question, 1959? Because when you mentioned CinemaScope, I remember, yeah, it's totally in CinemaScope. Yeah. I just, that was a typo in my notes. I apologize. 1959. Oh, okay. But it is three hours and 32 minutes. But yeah, William Wilder, going back to about like how Barry Lyndon's gone up in people's estimation, William Wilder's one of those directors who has vanished in the 20 years since I first got started getting into movies. I mean, he was considered like a really big deal, like masterpiece theater and all that kind of stuff. And now... Nobody talks about him. Either he made like the best years of our lives. My grandfather really I've liked seen that. Roman Holiday, The Big Country. But that, yeah, he's just one of those directors who has dropped off the face of the earth. But Ben Hur, it's because it's just this idea of also of like there's there's a lacking of the uh, you know quote unquote authorship. Like so, I mean I, I, Howard Hawks obviously people still talk about, but you know only a rarefied sort of bubbled community talks about Howard Hawks anymore. But yeah, whereas think, people, but a lot of people still talk about Hitchcock. It's interesting seeing like which directors survive from that period and grow, right. and which completely fade into the ashes of time. Well, you're a much bigger Howard Hawks expert than I am. I've only seen a handful of his movies, but I think the the reason why it's easier to remember directors like Hitchcock from that period is because they always there was always kind of like a through line through all of their movies, you know, that you couldn't take away. Whereas Howard Hawks. Would, yeah, bring his touch to those movies, but it's really tougher to see back then where it wasn't, like, such a visual game of, like, I'm going to be distinct visually right now also. Also, he if directed anything, Howard everything. Hawks, Howard Hawks did the reverse, 
where he's like, it's all gonna be medium shots and it's gonna be visually yeah. unspectacular because it's all about the characters and the performances. Like he very deliberately kind of ran away from style, whereas Hitchcock embraced style. Yeah, he was. Right. And then and the Hitchcock, obviously, then you know Brian De Palma and the guys of the seventies, they would start to take those techniques away from him. But I think Harold Hawks was also just that many movies. How many movies did he make? A lot. And then, like, varying genres, varying, you know, uh, quality also. I think it's tougher mm-hmm. to take a hold into a greater consciousness when you're like that, you know? Because I, I'm, I'm tough, I'm hard-pressed to think of any director who really, like, captured the mind of people, like, 50, 60 years after their career mm-hmm. without, or, like, even 10, 20, 30 years after their career without having a very specific sort of take on life in general. Or the fact yeah. that, like, you know, Jarmusch, as an example of, like, Jarmusch's zombie movie. Let's see what that yeah. looks like. But if like. you were to ask Jarmusch, like, in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah, but he's like a who was the, who's, who's the greatest director in the 50s, he would say Nicholas Ray. Most yeah, young right. cinephiles now have not heard of Nicholas Ray. Yeah, oh, yeah. So like, Nicholas and, Ray, but Nicholas Ray is one of the great directors of the 50s, hands down. And, yeah, tying it back to, like, being a Cinemascope fan, like, he was an amazing, like, uh, use of, like, he made um, amazing use of Cinemascope. Like, I mean, my favorite film of his is actually this... MGM musical that's a gangster film called um, uh, Party Girl with Sid Charisse and like the use of colors and cinemascope in that film is just brilliant like it's I mean, and Bigger Than Life is also amazing. Bigger Than Life is a yeah. stunning yeah. stunning movie great melodrama but it's one of those things where I, but I'm always curious because I love all these these giants from that period but just seeing now that I've been a cinephile for a little over 20 years just seeing who has grown and who has diminished in terms of uh, recognition and renown and all around popularity like my opinion of those directors hasn't changed but it's just interesting seeing like the ebb and flow of the conversation of which old directors still get discussed well I think a lot of that's also going to be especially now in the, you know in the time that we're living and everything and whether or not you agree or disagree with it it's just a lot of them were white men Right, and now we're going through a bit of a revolution in that regard, and so people are not going to want to try to champion those filmmakers anymore. They're going to try to be like, "Hey, man, do you remember Ida Lupina? You know, one of the first fucking female filmmakers, if not like the first like DGA, like uh, American but female." Half these guys were gay dudes. They just hadn't come out of the closet. No, of course. I mean, Billy Wilder <laughs> wasn't Billy Wilder gay also. I don't. Well, I, I don't think he was, but uh, but George Cukor was obviously a very famous example. Someone who was out of the closet in Hollywood, but in the closet in the in the rest of the of the world. So it's one of those things where if you want to go the identity politics route, you can just make it into a championing oh, no, of gay rights. I, I don't want to go one route or another route, but it's just going to be like. But that's how it's going to be perceived, and that Hollywood was a boys' club for the longest time, and everything. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're you know, and there's a but now it's um you know Charles Burnett's coming back out, and obviously he's mm-hmm. not a 1950s or 60s director. But I think that's that that's probably why some of these guys are going to be forgotten. Like, no one's going to do the due diligence of now being like, well, let's re-examine this white male director when we're well, trying to... I might, be, f- I might be foolishly naive, and this might be foolishly hopeful on my part, but I do believe this is a fad, and that eventually merit and ability will be more important than race, skin color, or sexuality. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so I think this <clears throat> period of intense wokeness where people only focus on skin, sexuality, and gender... I think it's a short-lived phenomenon, and there will come a time where it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what you look like. If you're good, you're good, and that's what matters. And right. for me as a cinephile, talent is far more important well, than I mean, anything related to identity. Because there's another thing that I really don't like, more so than even that. It was just that it seems like um, 
critics and audiences they tend to attach the uh, get attached to personalities, and that personality mm. can do no wrong. And I'm not even talking about like the idea of that person as an actor or an actress or a writer or a director or a filmmaker or an artist or anything. It's always just like I really like them in interviews. This person can't make a bad movie anymore. So, for instance, I think Jennifer Connelly's in that camp of just like. She can't do any fucking wrong because she's Jennifer apparently Connelly, the actress? not Connelly. Excuse me, uh, Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence. Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence cannot do any wrong, <laughs> according to critics yeah. or anyone. She's right. not. She has not been a bad action since uh, American Hustle, which I would absolutely disagree with. Uh, she well, clearly that, they didn't see Red Sparrow, which shows you had a Russian accent. <laughs> but even that got like decently fucking. You know, no, what that movie was like. Oh, it's an okay movie, but you know, it was really good in Jennifer Lawrence. I'm like, no, no, she she's a bad actress. Just, and she's yeah. picking bad fucking pictures. Can we all get over it? That's what I'm really not about anymore. It's just like we're right. into personalities. We're into like the branding mm-hmm. of a person, and as opposed to what the fuck is the quality of the work we're watching? Sure, yeah. it's checked all the fucking boxes of all the PC things we're going through in life right now, but it's not. It doesn't have any fucking voice. It doesn't have any. Well, bite. that's kind of how this any... conversation with this topic or this episode got started. With Zoller, uh, a director you like who make a movie that disappoints you, like do you go to Batford or not? Like do you treat him like he's mm-hmm. in the Special Olympics? Like, and you give him a pass, or do you attack it with rigor? Yeah. And so that's it. You're kind of circling right. back to the idea of this podcast. Yeah, and I mean, I think you you should hold like artists accountable for their work. You know, it's no matter like even I'm like I'm a fan of certain filmmakers. Yeah, if I don't like the film, I don't like it. Like it's not. But I, and it ties back to what I was saying earlier about creating goodwill. It has to be the work. It's not the filmmaker. <laughs> like that. That's just one thing that will get me in the door and get me into the seat to watch a movie. But uh, like to actually be on board with it, it ha- the film has to do the work. That's also like, think- a trend with critics going back to the whole wokeness thing, where they give directors. It's a weird thing where they think they're doing something good, but in a way they're kind of doing harm. Where they treat these directors as if they're like a cripple that needs help, and it's like, no, they're a filmmaker, they're a storyteller. Uh, yeah, I mean, treat yeah, them like that, an adult. The other thing, like, teach them, treat them like a filmmaker, yeah. and don't give them a pass because you're worried about losing your your wokeness score on well, there's, Yelp. Yeah. There's another thing on the reverse of that. I remember when the House That Jack Bill came out, which was actually one of my top five movies last year probably it was I, fucking wild yeah. I really, yeah. <laughs> it was but wild it, it was wild for a lot of reasons but also it was like you said dude I was in a spell of sorts like yeah, I was uh, in that world right. no especially other... at the very end I was like I'm well, in, yeah, you're I'm in, in, different I'm in heaven completely. I'm in heaven watching this ironically yeah. enough when you're in hell but that like that, I remember there was a critic to your point is uh, I will name names Jeff yeah. uh, it will be a good communist to name names Jeff Chang of Variety uh, his okay. review of the house that Jack built was Lars von Trier is a stupid fucking idiot. I don't like him. All right, so you're already telling me that you're not going to give this movie a chance at any point. You're never going to separate it from the filmmaker. And it's not like, you know, a fucking uh, surviving Nazi fucking decides to make a movie at the age of 101. It's just a fucking dude who might have said something stupid that didn't land very well as a He joke. told a dumb joke about Nazis, so now people think he's actually he's a, a Nazi. Nazi or some shit. And so yeah, therefore, he's, he's a fucking yeah. idiot, he's a fucking troll, he's this and that, yeah. I'm not going to take any fucking effort to analyze this film. But then, in the same breath, because it was in Khan, he reviewed uh, Black Klansman very well. Black Klansman, which I mm. think is very liberal propaganda, hoorah-rah oh, yeah, bullshit, that last which is just as bad as like a conservative awful. making an hoorah-rah yeah. propaganda Thick fucking film like any of those god movies that come out nowadays 
And like, and like everyone's saying, well, you know, good for Spike. He made a third of a good movie. It's the best that we've seen in years from him. So therefore, <laughs> let's give him Oscars. Let's give yeah. him good reviews. It's fucking nonsense because everyone, and that's what I'm, the point I'm getting to is Jeff Chang wanted to get his dick sucked. So he wanted to look like a woke little fucker and not talk about the actual merits of either film. It's just about, look at this. Look at the optics of this. Like, look at how bright it was. We're in his camp and we're not yeah. in that camp. And, and it's just camps. It's, yeah. I'm not yeah. going to do my job as a critic. This is not even a regular person. This is a person who's decided to fucking make money off of us maybe believing his critical analysis on something. Mm. Fuck that shit, man. Fuck that. Yeah. And also, I mean, Lars von Trier did make a director's cut yeah. for that movie. Well, so one thing, I, I think yeah. it's a fad, and it's, a, it's not a fad I'm a fan of, but think these things come. There's an ebb and flow to everything, but I, I'm, once again, I'm maybe I'm being painfully naive. I think when people write the history books on cinema... The good directors will get discussed, and the bad yeah. directors will get shat on, and uh, that's just the, uh, uh, once again, life's too short to get too lost on the week. Just like kind of become an impatient towards like artistic kind of stuff. I'm that way with also his books right now, where I'm not. I, I do read a lot of books, but I'm not willing to give books a try. I kind of want to know in advance: is it in the canon of the great books, or is it right. like a, a genre series that is kind of teed up perfectly to my taste and needs? Like, there's certain yeah. genre fiction, like fantasy and sci-fi, where I want to, mm-hmm. or horror, that where I want to read the really, really good ones. Or if I'm going to read a piece of literature, I'm like, all right, I want to know that. This is like on the level of like the sun also rises because I'm not just going to give a bunch of like I'm not going to give a hundred authors a chance on the off chance that one of them is as good as sun also rises. I'd rather just read the sun also rises and know yeah, exactly. I'm getting one of those essential books. So yeah, life is short, literature is long, yeah. and I just don't have time to go on exploratory journeys. But like when I listen to like Brad Easton Ellis's podcast and he talks about how there was a period where he would finish every book he started. I'm like mm-hmm. Jesus yeah. Christ! I can't imagine that. That's either. an incredible yeah. commitment to finish. Every every book you started yeah and i'm like uh, at a point in my life where it's like books that i read like have to inspire me in some way like if it doesn't like elicit ideas like i'm just not gonna bother with it like it has to be like yeah i guess we can get into it in the podcast too because you know mikhail and i 
well, he's read 2666, and I'm, I'm like one fifth of the way through the book right now. And like, yeah, the only I'm video still... I ever did for Wrong Real. <laughs> That's right, you did. Excellent. All right. Well, moving right. on. Here, right, here's a, a a fun one, and it's been a source of constant debate for the last. 39 years and I guess the most prevalent cut that is discussed is 219 minutes 1980 Michael Cimino Heaven's Gate Carlo oh. go oh my god I'm so disappointing I am um, I have not seen it like I it's holy cow so you, have, you, you didn't but, watch the Steven Soderbergh abbreviated cut where he just cut out like the, the opening first 30 hour minutes? he just, yeah. <laughs> he just cut oh out. shit I love I love those cuts he does like actually like his version of Psycho and the Raiders Psycho are great one, yeah. and then um he actually also recut this film, this small obscure film that I love called um, uh, Keen with Damien Lewis, where he plays like this uh, this guy, would mentally challenged guy who's like looking for his daughter in Port Authority bus station. And it's like an amazing film. And Soderbergh's cut is really fun to watch, too. Like it's uh, well, fun. Is Did not, he produce right. that? Yeah, he produced it. And then he the special the only special feature on the DVD is his version of the film <laughs> what are the differences but, yeah. between because i've seen i've seen keen i remember thinking keen was a very claustrophobic movie i so yeah, many close-ups yeah yeah i think um well i the one i just remember distinctly is soderbergh starts the movie with with damian lewis sleeping on the side of on the median in the the highway mm. like that's how the movie begins Whereas, how, does it, you know, how does it begin uh, otherwise uh it's like him going through the bus station just like asking questions and like you know um you're you can't quite orient yourself yet like you're you're falling right behind him like kind of like a Darden brothers movie yeah you know and so you prefer uh, uh, soderbergh's cut um no i like i like lodge kerrigan's cut okay <laughs> but I, I i think soderbergh's cut is is equally valid well i remember but, soderbergh also helped uh, spike jones was having like trouble cutting her for a year or so and then like soderbergh had to sit down with him and like Talk him through. I love Soderbergh. Yep. I love Soderbergh all that shit about Soderbergh. Get a product out the door. Like he's made so many movies as producer and director. He, you know, you eventually you just run out of time. Like movies aren't finished; they're abandoned. You get to a certain point and you move on. It's so like, how do you not want to just like work on the next fucking thing? You know, yeah. like I, that's how I always feel. Is just like I want to work on the next thing. I want to work on the fucking thing. I want to read the next book. Yeah. I want to read. I want to watch the next movie. I want to watch already. What, but, but any strong feelings about Heaven's Gate? Um, I also have not watched it. I've only seen Deer Hunter. I mean, because the thing is, I only know Chimino as like deer hunter guy and then right. after that yeah. he fucked up the 70s for everyone with heaven's gate <laughs> and then bankrupt the, the studio and the altar era um <laughs> so like that's all i know for and i know that this movie is still a mixed bag like i know it's on criterion i know it's like well regarded now but i also still know that it's 50 50 you're either into that fucking runtime or you are not mm-hmm. it also helps if you're into westerns and i am into westerns right. so i am a heaven's gate guy and like vilma zigman's photography yeah. mm. is stunning you have all these wonderful performances and i, I adore Isabel Isabel who's one of my all-time yeah. favorite actors maybe I mean, I think I think she's the best living actress right now. She still is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, so well, that well then there's Tilda. No, it has a lot of or Tilda's obviously brilliant as well, but it has a lot of really noteworthy attributes, and there's sequences that are some of the most stunning sequences I've ever seen. As a movie, it's a giant, bloated, egotistical, mm-hmm. maniacal catastrophe. But I actually really fi- I love flawed masterpieces ambitious messes I man. love yeah. misguided yeah, right. yeah. where a great director flies off the rails I find those sometimes infinitely more fascinating than some of the more well because it's still like fun films. to them you know so the always my favorite thing about director's cuts and when you're reading about them you're like 
oh, because surely something was going on behind the scenes that is worth reading right. about also. You know, like, that shit always gets me amped up, too. So you hear that, like, Heaven's Gate destroyed a fucking studio and it's a bloated yeah. movie. I'm like, well, what the yeah. fuck was going on? And Stephen Bach's yeah. book, Final Cut, covers the entire debacle. Stephen Bach was an exec at United Artists, and he covers the entire mm. thing, and it is riveting reading. Brittany's dad was actually Brittany, who's been on the podcast before has been trying to get me to read that fucking thing forever. I'm like, I can't read it until I watch the movie. Right. I need to know the context. Right. Of the I mean, but it's also reading. like, it goes into like the, the founding of United Artists by like D.W. Griffith and Mary Pickford and all this guys like back in the, back in the early days. So it covers the whole history of United Artists up until the point where it just completely implodes. And yeah, of all the films that you could have possibly worked on in history, that is not the one you want to work on. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was not, not, not a fun production. Yeah. All right, well, moving yeah, on. I mean, Oh, sorry. Go I would say to just to add to it that yeah, I do want to see. It. I wasn't like a Western fan originally, but like I've really gotten into it, and I mean, I think it's kind of making a comeback with like Westworld, and then I saw mm. this amazing movie called The Long Riders by Walter Hill. Oh, it's killer! And yeah, yeah it's awesome. then Deadwood as well. Like oh, Deadwood. The Deadwood, Love Deadwood. Yes, Deadwood. So it's like um, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've started to get back into it. So it. Uh, unlike the other previous movies that I haven't seen and I have no interest really in seeing, like Heaven's Gate is still on my list. I want to see it. And especially because um, Tom Noonan is also in it. And he has like this amazing story where he said that um, the stunt guy on on Heaven's Gate was like one of the worst people. Like he, he, um, he said he wanted to blow actors up. And he eventually was in charge of the the Twilight Zone movie where he, they you did know, blow up Big Morrow died, yeah, in the in that sequence. So there you go. Yeah, so I'm yeah, curious. I guess the next time you hear your stunt stunt coordinator saying, you know, I want to kill some people on a movie, like with a, a devilish grin on their face, maybe yes. don't hire him for Move on. Move <laughs> One of my on. favorite things on the movie Geely, I can't even remember his name, but because it was a union shoot, you had to have a special effects supervisor, even if there were no special effects. Uh -huh. And there's this guy, he was notorious for only being hired as a special effects supervisor when there were no special effects to be done because there had been a movie one time where he thought he heard someone say action and he blew up a building when they hadn't and the cameras weren't rolling and his name was Mud from that point on. They're like, no. <laughs> well, clearly his name wasn't so fucking muddy that he kept getting work. What is this, <laughs> a union <laughs> thing? Union shoot, like you have Jesus to have somebody in that fucking... slot. No, but how did this guy yeah. not just get fucking arrested? Yeah, that's, that's a amazing. criminal activity. I want to uh, be that guy. That's kind of like Luke Wilson. In, you want to uh, be that guy? <laughs> You want to be a Ted Kaczynski type? What the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> no, not not that guy, but the guy who just like does the thankless task and like, you know. Yeah, he does the job it. that doesn't need to be done on a set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So there are different cuts of this one as well, but I'm going to go with the longer version, which I saw recently. 1984, 229 minutes. Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. So, uh, 
I don't know which cut I've seen. <laughs> if you saw the problem. recent Blu-ray, you've seen uh -huh. the most lengthy version. There's okay. the European cut, which is the quote-unquote director's cut that's been on for decades. Yeah. But remember, There's they the, released it on DVD the first time. That's the cut I saw. Yeah, what yeah, was yeah. that? That discs. was a big deal. Yeah, uh, and it was a weird. It, it, well, if there were sequences where you could see clear deterioration in the film quality. That's because that footage no longer exists, and they had to use like some sort of like you know prints that were found like rotting in an attic or whatever. So if you notice weird sequences that seem like they don't match the rest of the movie, that is the most extended version available. Otherwise, you probably saw the traditional European cut, which is a gorgeous, yeah. phenomenal, That's amazing cut. What I saw. And if you saw it sequ yeah. going back to the whole making movies sequential or not. If you saw it sequentially, that's the original theatrical cut, which butchered and well, ravaged. Why I hear is it. terrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because um, yeah, I definitely remember that it was over two hundred minutes the version that I saw, and um, I love how like the I like I sometimes go back to old like Siskel and Ebert reviews because just like of the time capsule factor of it, and they gave Once Upon a Time in America a negative review, and I was like, what are they talking about? And then it turns out that there was that cut that you're saying that's yep. like um chronological and like i think it's only a little over two hours it basically killed um, leone i mean like yeah james, Co later, james coburn it? had a sit down with him where he said like he had like just turned gray and he was like they like they murdered my movie like they took the heart and soul out of my movie and once again at least his proper version or a good version existed in europe but just yeah. he spent an entire decade of his life on this on its on this masterpiece and they yeah. just said nope sorry it's not a masterpiece we're just gonna shit all over it and dump it on the market and see what happens and it just it, it, he never recovered yeah i yeah. Uh, i i i remember as a, I, I haven't watched since i was like 17 so I, yeah that's one of my recent oh. additions to my wall oh shit <laughs> yeah, nice. once upon a time in america poster. i uh i bought it blind i really liked i mean it was it was that time too when like cases for blu-ray or dvds were just so like when they were in a box set and they unfolded <laughs> yeah. and it was like a new fucking yeah. car like that was that thing right. i bought it blind i was like what is this I'm robert de niro what is this movie i open up new books and i smell between the pages or yeah, those spines right there of those cory books or who, whatever is it james yeah, yeah, yeah the expanse series yeah that's fucking beautiful but, or i take really old books that have are turning brown and i open up mm. and, I, and i smell library those. books yeah, i love old books yeah. and i like the smell of new books absolutely man i started going <laughs> yeah, to the library again recently Fucking every time I walk in, it's like a fucking opiate of some mm -hmm. kind. But like that movie, I don't, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I do remember I sat through it in one sitting, so yeah. it must have done something fucking right for me. And there are still right. scenes I remember to this day, even though I've not rewatched it. I watched it once, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I might as well have fucking rented it. But I remember the rape scene in the car. I remember the bank heist where they all take their dicks out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a, right. a, a heist which combined with a rape, and then later on they bump into her again, and they take they blind they cover their faces with handkerchiefs, and they pull their dicks out to see if she can she recognize yeah, yeah, which yeah. one of them raped her. And she's like licking her teeth, and she she's this like sexual pervert who loves to like have like sex with ten men at once and that sort of thing. She's like she's really into it, yeah. and so she's having the time of her life, and she's like making out with James Woods and like groping Robert De Niro's dick. I mean, she she's but in the middle of this heist, right? Isn't no, no, it? Oh no, it's yeah, later on. There's okay, a rape in the heist, it. but got later. It. On, they're like this, like this, this sex club because she and her husband like to come into town and he watches through a keyhole while she takes on a room full of guys. That's kind of. I need to rewatch this fucking movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to see it too. I haven't seen it in a long time, and um, I mean, I am biased towards like movies that are that came out the year I was born. So this is like a 1984 movie. So I, I kind of like comb through the movies that came out that year, and that's how actually I came across it. Was just like, oh, what is this movie? And like, 
it's Leone's last movie. And I also have a fascination with director's last films. You know, it's just like that's what they left us with, you know. Mm. So um, with this film, it was just like, I, yeah, I mean, it was a gangster movie. I was into gangster movies at that time and it has De Niro in it. But I was surprised that it, it's a Jewish gangster movie. It's yeah. not an Italian Absolutely. gangster movie. Yeah, that that was really what drew it, and then of course you know that iconic image that now everybody has on Instagram, which is the the Manhattan Bridge. And it's on it's on Blu-ray now, though. Like, is it also like part of like? Does it have like multiple cuts on it? And stuff? Well, Scorsese played it at Con a couple of years ago. That's right. The, yeah, the yeah, fully, yeah. It's as restored as it's gonna get. And once oh, again, oh, they really came in. Yeah. It's well, so it's bad they can't repair the those like scenes. A couple of years ago, yeah. too, I remember, and I wanted to go, but the screening was sold out, so like I missed it. Um, and they only did one screening. What happens oh, to a, what happens to film that you can't you really can't restore it whatsoever? Because I feel like everything's been restored to fuck right now of late. Well, just about what what available materials are there, and just the the people in charge at the time weren't necessarily preserving the additional footage to the degree that I mean, no one could anticipate this Blu-ray market, you know, back in yeah, 1984. And so they just they've done the best they can under the circumstances. But sadly, we will never have. And at one point, Sergio Leone wanted to make it into two movies, and they put the kibosh on that but it is uh, it's a very special movie you can make a very easy case for as Sergio Leone's finest movie and it certainly has arguably the finest score ever written by a human being by Ennio Morricone so it's it's, it's a magical movie so I'd say the length is just right he's always had a thing for runtime too or a lengthy runtime yeah I mean he's like Mm. once we time in the west long flick good the bad and the ugly long flick but Mm -hmm. they they, they, I think all of those are just right but here's a movie that I seen once I will never watch again 1956 220 minutes Cecil B. DeMille's remake of his own movie The Ten Commandments again biblical epic historic (laughs) Uh, Charlie Charles Heston uh, all those things I don't fucking want in my movies ever (laughs) count me out watch the parting of the Red Seas I've and, seen that, and then that's a, maybe that's about all. And maybe the like uh, when he comes down with the tablets and things. like I've that. I've seen like, the last yeah. third as a kid, like on WB on a Saturday afternoon. I, I couldn't say that much. And yeah, I remember. I, I remember even now, like the special effects are great. Fuck me, man. Those are all the things that I never look into. <laughs> but I remember watching it in college, and I was like, why does this music sound so familiar? Like, what? I'm having like an out of body experience. What the fuck is going on? Finally, I realized the golf sequence with the bishop and Caddyshack when he gets hit by a bolt of lightning uses the score from Ten Commandments. And I've seen that movie a hundred thousand times. Oh, man. And then when I actually I saw the movie in, with the music in its proper context, I was like, and it, so I just started like laughing hysterically because I couldn't stop thinking of Caddyshack throughout the entire in the yeah. entirety of Ten Commandments. But yeah, it's um, that is uh, I, I do not seek out these movies. But I was in college, and I was getting into old movies. I, I figured, why not give it a go? And you know, but along those exact same lines, and you would think I would have a sentimental affection for this being a southerner, but actually I don't. But I've seen it once in the theater, and I'll never watch it again. Two hundred thirty-eight minutes, nineteen thirty-nine, Gone with the Wind.
believe I watched that whole fucking movie in one sitting, too. I can't believe you're telling me that's 238 fucking minutes long. Yeah. And that is... Two minutes shy of four hours. Uh, if you uh, if you um, set to inflation and everything and all that shit, or adjust... It's a, three, it's a three billion dollar movie. It still has made more money than any popu- movie in the world. most popular movie ever, if you adjust for inflation. Holy fucking shit, man. Yeah. Um, with that being said, just right. <laughs> 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 could have been yeah. longer my no, mom's uh, seen it many times like for her that's like titanic she just watched it over like for like titanic for my sister she saw it 13 times in the theater my mother's seen gone with the wind every chance she gets every time they would because re- once upon a time there was no dvd no vhs they would just re-release movies in the theater and so you would have to catch it then or you might be another five or ten years before you the get fuck a chance was your mom doing that she had four hours in her day she just she read the book she read the book while breastfeeding me she was just so into gone with the wind <laughs> but i remember i first saw it, my first summer in la as a summer intern i was like all right gone with the winds playing a the theater i'm finally gonna get in touch with my southern heritage and you know it's but it's it, the whole thing feels like it was shot in a back lot in hollywood which it was it doesn't feel southern at all it feels yeah. like any oh. like it feels like about as southern as wizard of oz <laughs> and so uh shot by the same director <laughs> yeah so or just, at least yeah gone with the wind of... is, is not my bag if i'm gonna watch a movie about the south there are a million other movies i would pick first yeah gone with the wind i don't know i, right. I remember it being very lengthy and then i remember even being at that age <laughs> very young and when he's like what what does he say what's what's that famous last line bitch fuck off uh, what is that <laughs> essentially uh, what frankly, it is I don't give bitch a fuck off <laughs> I was like what the what is this movie supposed to be about I don't understand I've been following her but why is he the one who's getting like I don't know that entire movie seems so fucked to me even as a kid like mammy I was like oof <laughs> Ooh, you don't I don't I don't know. I'm only eleven, but I'm feeling like something wrong is happening with this performance. <laughs> <laughs> and I found there's an adult that she was the first like black actress to win an Oscar. Absolutely. Yeah, for playing a caricature. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that movie uh yeah. Like I said, just right. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. It doesn't score high on the on the wokeness meter, but it's one of those things where. But I it also doesn't score but, high on the compelling meter. But for me, for historical epics, I am. Um, I, I, I will sooner watch Birth of a Nation than I will Gone with the Wind. Yeah, I, the only positive thing I could say about that movie is that it had a beautiful DVD box set. Fair enough. Okay. That, that tactile sensations of DVD box sets or Blu-ray like, box sets. Yeah, and I will always it's, miss it's that. An important part I remember Fight Club had an awesome one where it kind of felt like the packaging that I was wrapped up in. Shit like that, I always Yeah, loved. yeah, that was great. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you mentioned that Memento special edition, too. Oh, I did that like was a great it was like fucking a note, box set. And like it even a, had a little, like, uh, placeholder in it that you could remove and put in like you would in a folder with a tab. Oh, right. it's fucking All right, well, yeah. I got three more, and then we, then I'll, I'll leave room for you all to make some honorable mentions. But 1927, a movie I've not seen... For a long time, it was only available in a 240-minute cut, but a 2016 restoration is 332 minutes. Abagant's Napoleon. Shit. I haven't seen it, but it's on my list. It's one of those. It's on my list, too, and I've seen sequences, and it's one of those old Mm -hmm. experiments where for certain scenes, they lined up three cameras side by side, so they have like the fake widescreen. Wasn't that like the first one they tried that with? They've done it with a couple movies. Like they also did it with Raul Walsh's film, uh, The Big Trail. Mm. But you have like these crazy like Cinerama experiences, but they had to Mm. cheat it with three cameras and three projectors. So to get three projectors to play it right, same time, it's very tough. I can't remember if I saw that in the Scorsese documentary or that uh, Odyssey documentary that Britain put out like a couple of years ago. Also, do you remember that one? Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, the with Mark Brit- Cousins like, yeah, yeah. story of film. That yeah. was really fucking good, too. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's the only reason I know that exists. Yeah, well, one of these days mm-hmm. I will see it, but the 332-minute cut seems a little intense. But um, mm-hmm. once again, it's it's one of the towering works of silent cinema that I have not seen. I, I must see it. Didn't they just re-release uh, at Lincoln Center? It was like earlier this year, Film Society, uh, War and Peace, but the Russian version, which was like fucking eight and a half hours, and they did know, three maybe. segments. Yeah, because oh, Criterion, <laughs> Criterion's putting it out in like a couple of months now. Because whenever I hear that something is like doing a tour across America in a 4K restoration, I'm like, oh shit, Criterion's about to put that shit out. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's supposed to be really good. good. That's one of those productions, though, where like the government hated him. I think he had like three heart attacks while directing, directing at this guy. Actors were <laughs> saying that he tried to murder them. <laughs> like he went fucking full on insane trying to complete this like eight hour epic. So I want to watch it just for that. Beautiful. All right, well, this next one I have seen, I saw it in one sitting at the New Beverly, Bernardo Bertolucci's complete cut, 1976 of 1900. Okay, so I have seen this film, and uh, I will say, though, it's difficult for me to separate the sentimental reasons why I like it uh, is because it's my dad's favorite film, and we've watched it together. Well, later, so for people out there who like... don't know what this movie is, give us the pitch on Bernardo, Bertol- Bernardo Bertolucci's oh, 1900. Shit. Okay, I will say that it has been a while, too, but it's it's kind of like the generational film where it follows like these two young men played by um, Robert De Niro and Gerard Depardieu, and they fall in love with the same woman. Is that... Indeed. Like, There's a pretty Claudia, Claudia. wild, full frontal nudity like threesome between the three of them where like De Niro's like grabbing Gerard Depardieu's junk and it it gets a little it gets a little intense wow (laughs) yeah I mean you know eroticism is one of the things that like Bertolucci has like done well throughout his entire career um as for the length yeah that was just the thing I think I it was at the time where I was just like drawn to it and I was just like because of its length too it was just like oh I have to watch this because it's that long and then, you know, it's just like De Niro again in a long film. And this was after Once Upon a Time in America. So, like, that kind of developed that good I mean, sense you saw, of goodwill. You saw it after Once Upon a Time in America, but obviously it came yeah, out. Well, yeah. Yeah. And it was crazy that he was flying back to New York on the weekends while shooting this to just drive a cab to get ready to shoot Taxi Driver. He wasn't even shooting Taxi Driver. He, prepared. he just wanted to get in that frame. That's how, like, you're talking about dedication. Like, now he just shows up for the check. But the, you're <laughs> shooting this giant epic in Italy with one of the greatest directors of that period and you're prepping one of the greatest movies to be made in America that period. De Niro obviously was Did the Conformist come out at that point? Conformist was what, 70, 71? When was Conformist? So yeah, yeah I guess That so. was Bertolucci's that's first what I thought. film. Yeah. So that was like, well, when his first, but it was his first know, big hit. Spider Strategism yeah. was oh, yeah, before. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, it was definitely before um, Novo Ciento. 1900. So yeah. how did Bertolucci find out about, uh, what, did he see Mean Streets or some shit? He probably saw Godfather 2. He probably saw Mean Streets. Wait, Godfather 2 came out before Taxi Driver. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, and sure. also De Niro had been like in Greetings and Hi Mom for De Palma. Like, people forget that Scorsese yeah. did not discover De Niro. No, 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 no. but De as Palma. in like, but how did he get across the, you know, like, how get, I, you still would have to probably, like, probably make be a box office the draw. international I would assume like, Godfather 2, which was 74. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It had to be because yeah, he won an Oscar for it, so it's like you know that definitely I think um, cemented him as like oh this guy's a talent you know it's just he was speaking Italian too so it's like okay let's bring him for this international Italian <laughs> co-production you know it's like let's bring him on board but I, I I can't say though if it's too long or if it's just right like it's hard for me to say it's just like a I have to like go back and watch it again well, I if guess, the specific you know? length was like catnip for you luring you in to watch it. Sounds like it yeah. was just right, at least for yeah. young cinephiles who like <laughs> yeah. long movies. And have, yeah, and I have fond memories of it. That's the thing. But it's just like, you know, how 
you want to rewatch certain things to kind of reevaluate it. Like, yeah, Once Upon a Time in America, I think it's it's ripe for I would reviewing. love to rewatch that, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, when man. I went to see this, 1900 The New Bev, I remember showing up and I saw everybody there had brought like picnic lunches and pillows and blankets. Like, fuck me. I was like, I'm unprepared. <laughs> like if, if they knew, you better get comfortable for this because this is this is a, a journey we're about to take. And I was just there probably high out of my skull with like a Coke, like shit. Like no. I, I need to up my game. But I, I did, but I did watch it. Well, it's just tough with these movies too. Like as a fellow person who runs out halfway through a movie to take a piss, right? Like it just it always kind of like I hate I hate movies of a certain runtime now in theaters just because I was like I can't pause this I can't go pee I'm gonna miss frames I'm gonna miss a couple of shots yeah. I'm gonna miss whatever exchange and of course I'm like for instance I had a buddy uh, she went to see uh, Hereditary with someone she had already seen Hereditary I'm not gonna get into why she had to lie to this person as to not admit to this person that they saw Hereditary this is Brittany actually <laughs> <laughs> so Brittany promised to see Hereditary with someone she had already seen it like twice in theaters and as we all know there's a very significant twist in the first 20 minutes of Hereditary and we were all built <laughs> to believe that it was gonna be like an evil child movie right and so <laughs> This dude's like, hey, I'm going to go take a piss. And it's right before the party sequence so and the highway did she, scene. Did she out herself and tell him not to go? She didn't. She fucking <laughs> held on to the lie and let him go and fucking miss it. Why did she feel the need oh, to lie about having... Because it's not like a close friend. But what? All right, was, Brendan could come back onto the show. We could do a whole episode as to why she me, could like, like, fuck him I, over what that is, way. What is to be gained by telling somebody that you haven't seen a movie if, unless you said like, I, like we're gonna pinky swear like you're five and say we're gonna go to this movie together I think it was something along those lines wow alright well which was like uh, wow you done him dirty Brett it just, but it blows my mind that she would take it that seriously where she would feel compelled to rob him of the experience of the most like shocking moment of the movie Hereditary by the way I loved and we got uh, Midsommar coming in July his next movie and the trailer looks bananas have y'all um, seen it? If you don't have anyone to do that episode, I'll do that episode. I saw Hereditary three times that year. And, I fucking love. It's a weird that thing movie. where like some people think it's like watching paint dry. I really. Have, I, I had like, who the fuck said that? I have like I had like four heart attacks watching it. I, I was completely. I, I don't know. Would you like? I mean, sure. There are big horror moments. There are moments that are like just family driven. That I was like. Ooh, that's the shit that fucking scared me. Like that dinner sequence where she's just not having any of his like. What was what that thing? She's like, and you're looking at me with that face. You know, like those lines are so. You're looking at me with that fucking face. It reminds me of Wedding Crashes actually. Of just like you shut your fucking mouth when you talk to me. You know, like it's just such an insane thing to say. Like an uncontrollable. You know, I I loved Hereditary. I'm very much in for Midsommar. Or oh, Midsummer, how it's Lister? How Ari Lester, Ari Lester, and Ari like Aster? the fact yeah. that he's, he's young, he's like thirty or something. Yeah, like that. and he's also yeah. this horror movie looks like the brightest, most colorful fucking horror movie. Like, yeah. there's no shadows to hide in this yeah. thing. How's he gonna scare us? I didn't watch the second trailer though, so don't tell me anything about it. I'm trying to not get spoiled. Yeah, it, 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 look, yeah. it looks beautiful. But yeah. I'm, I'm just for me, I like seeing the arrival of a new talent, and yeah. for, he very clearly. And also, he has a very specific incestuous, weird family dynamic thing that he keeps addressing, <laughs> even in his short films. That I am all about. <laughs> yeah, he is on my list of directors to be, watch out for. All right, so the last flick on my list I've not seen, but I included because it's Jacques Rivette. But you mentioned it before, Robert Carlo. <laughs> out one for 1971. This is a movie that is 729 minutes long. Yes. Um, <laughs> how, how long? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 729 minutes. Oh, no. I just blacked out for a second. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's, yeah. Just mathematically, yeah. that's what? Because 600 minutes would be 10 hours. So that's uh, mm-hmm. 12 hours and nine minutes long. Yeah. So talking about like the distinction between movies and TV shows, like 
the story behind this film was actually he wanted it to be a mo- uh, a TV show, but no TV network would accept it. So it was originally like twelve episodes. Gotcha. I'm sorry. It was- so a TV network wouldn't accept. So through is like, yeah, we'll make people sit through that. Yeah, <laughs> that's strange. Well, it, <laughs> or a production I mean, company I don't rather. I know how he what the story is behind the funding, how he got the money to make it, but. Definitely, I, I think the actors were like part of a theater troupe and they played that in the film. So it's like they, um, I, I don't know if they were just doing it for the experience or like, you know, just uh, they didn't really get paid <laughs> um, uh, like what their fees were. Because there are some big stars in it, like uh, Jean-Pierre Laud is in it. Who's oh, he's like, damn you know, good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, I remember the history of it is like, yeah, the 12-hour cut was just like, or 13-hour cut, whatever, was... Um, uh was always just like the stuff of legend the only version that people had seen was actually the four hour version so that was the one that he released in theaters and apparently it's completely different um there's a great um uh podcast uh, interview with uh um jonathan rosenbaum the oh critic. yeah he's great no, he's a br- yeah, brilliant brilliant historian yeah yeah so he he he's, he gets interviewed about out one if you just search it like jonathan rosenbaum out one and he talks about the differences between the two films and you know it just like it makes it so appealing. But again, as I said, like, uh, Rivette's films just clunk for me. You know, it's just like they, they, they don't go down smoothly. So it's just like the fact that you have to dedicate that much time to it and it's going to be a slog. It's just like kind of, well, you know, um, I, I couldn't get past the opening scene where they're just like rehearsing. In so you the mean theater. like the first two hours of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long it lasts. And by the way, another weird thing about this film, it was on Netflix for the longest time. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, yeah. And you had the option to watch it as like one continuous thing or as episodes. It was so funny. And then, um, and oh, then you know, when they, no. when it had a like restoration at BAM, like they they gave you the option to watch it like once every day or like um, over a weekend, so you could watch like it in two parts over a weekend mm. or. Or uh, like two episodes per day, like that kind of thing. So that just yeah, happened that with cool. uh, Hateful Eight on Netflix too. That they, uh, right. but but he supervised <laughs> that or some shit, right? Or yeah, like he was um, fine with it. It's a weird thing where I don't know why they made a longer version of Hateful Eight and put it on Netflix, but I I've left it alone. But I am wait excited a, a longer version than even the Roadshow version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you watched it yet? No. Okay. I, I don't. I, it's yeah. things, I don't need a longer version. <laughs> yeah, it was already pretty fucking long. Yeah, it, not, it wasn't a brisk piece of entertainment before, but uh, that's right. funny because, uh, and this is one of the most interesting ideas I think, and this is one of the biggest like fucking mental hiccups that I find interesting in people worldwide. We hear that a movie is 10 hours long, 14 hours, like, fuck that. But mm. we will sit in our apartments and, and watch, watch a 10-hour sh- season of TV. And binge it. It's, and, a, it's, but it's a structural thing. Yeah. No, but it's it, surely it's a structural thing of two, like, because every episode builds a full arc that it's easier to and consume. Usually nine or ten cliffhangers that make to you make you go forward for the opportunity to right. keep like going. a page turner as yeah. opposed right. to like no this is just gonna happen to you for ten hours. I think it, is is it perhaps something that has been beaten into us from TV from long ago where we got used to this idea of cliffhangers whereas movies unless it's part of a giant franchise don't offer you those bits but like you know recently like Cobra Kai season two it is pure hot fudge Sunday you know diarrhea for the brain blah 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 but every single episode has this beautiful wonderful little cliffhanger like i'm not going anywhere i'm watching the next fucking episode yeah. and i watched all 10 episodes in one sitting without without even like a pee break i was just like i think I it's because it. it's like a it's a reset button you know yeah. it's a reset
reset button, something that a movie doesn't allow. Allows you to reset. A movie can't allow you to reset because there's no commercial break, even, or there's not any kind of break for you to be like, but what's going to happen next? Because there's already a fucking another scene playing out in front of you. I mean, that right. probably has something and, to do with it. Yeah, I mean, that's really the thing. It, it gives you no reprieve, right? But so then again, like, Twin Peaks, I really did watch 10 hours of Twin Peaks in one day. That's intense. And oh, there are no, like, straight-up cliffhangers in that. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is the thing that I earmarked earlier that I wanted to bring up. Like, what about episode 12? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I did, I, again, I watched 12? 10 in one day. So to say a specific hour for me is not doing much. Remind me what happened in episode 12. Yeah. It's, been a, it's been almost uh, two years since I watched that's it. That's the thing. It's a nothing burger of an episode. Like, that's the only one where I was just like, what happened here? Like, there was just, it was just, things are just carrying on. But, like, there's nothing shocking well, that happened. But, like, where the no, characters like, that we're following or... I mean, the only memorable thing that happens in it to me is like the part where uh, Laura Dern turns around and she's like, let's do this. And then there's like this back mask, like zoom sound that happens. And that was the only memorable thing that happens in the entire episode. That didn't clarify anything for me, Carl. I have to be honest with you. <laughs> where are they in like prison <laughs> talking to like uh... when they, they decide to like let her in on everything? You know, it's just like, OK, this is the best way because they kind of know that she's also like a mole or something. But it's like, OK, well, the best thing that we should do is like get her to um to like uh, be be deputized or something like mm-hmm. that and that's really it and i think maybe there was a scene where like um russ tamblin what's his name doctor um uh the guy with the different yeah, yeah, glasses yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the psychiatrist like goes, from the first episode uh, first season. yeah yeah he goes to the storefront and then he sees his golden shovel and like they have this kind of like nostalgic moment the the woman with the eye patch i I don't even remember the character's names anymore dr jacoby that's it yeah so like um yeah so that happens in that episode but other than that it was just like kind of holding steady nothing was really of consequence in that film in that episode and that's the only thing where i felt like oh man like this is this is one episode too many like if it was like 17 um like hours like instead of 18 like yeah that would have been perfect for me <laughs> i'll have to rewatch episode 12 i have no fucking yeah, clue I what you're talking about intending to watch the whole thing again because i did have so much fucking fun watching it the first time around but because my youtube channel was just kind of getting going at the point I, when that show first started i had less than a, a thousand subscribers and following that show was what boosted me up and over a really? thousand for the first time and i it was the first time i got recognized in public i went to buy oatmeal in the village and I was a bit like, I'd done a couple of videos and the girl was like, you do those Twin Peaks videos. I was like, fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because nice. some of my Twin Peaks videos did, did pretty well. I was suddenly mm-hmm. like, for the first time, actually experiencing traffic on the channel. That's when I kind of got addicted to yeah. it. But I, but I, I need to I'm go curious back and revisit what you. What you what your reaction was to episode eight when it happened? Oh, you know, eight. I, I went berserk. I, I remember eight very. Yeah, you very saw. Clearly. So you watched it live? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, and, and, I and, wish I watched it live. My video for eight, I think, is still like one of my top twenty uh, videos that I've ever done. Hang on, actually, I'm curious. Let me see in my top twenty how many of my mm. Twin Peaks videos are actually still in there because I bet there are at least four or five. That have withstood the test yeah. of time. All right, so t- in my top five videos, my season finale review is my number four, 36,000 views. Mm. In my top 10 overall, so then I got to go, the next one's number 13. Episode 16, got 21,000 views. I said it's my favorite moment from any film or show all year. What was the moment? Mm. Uh, it's when um, 
what's his fucking name? Um, goddamn Cooper. Re- like regains his oh, memories, like and, and the, mu- yeah, and the music all, yeah. swells, yeah. and he like becomes a- Agent Cooper again. Yeah. And I remember that just blew my mind. I am the FBI. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then if you go up to six, all right. So that uh, then if you go, oh, my number twenty video is episode eight. I wrote best nineteen fifties retro horror film ever. Yeah. And that got sixteen thousand views. So yeah, so I still have a shitload of Twin Peaks. You know what I finally saw recently? That totally made me think of uh, what you just said, uh, Carnival of Souls. Oh, it's very I cool. I finally saw it for the first time. That movie's fucking twisted. Now, I love that know, shit, man. You know, saw that a billion times. 100%. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was thinking about that movie when he was doing episode eight or oh, hour with, eight without or question. Which is a, an astonishing piece of filmmaking. Yeah. But, uh, that, like. that, show, that show, yeah, because that thing is like, Talk about someone like a director who I think like when all his worst foibles are on display, I'm like, oh, this is just slow. Like Wild at Heart, I know is insane. It's strange. It's like this weird heated passion. There's all this New Orleans weird shit going on. in I just think it's so slow. But the fact hmm. that he took 18 hours and I didn't have any fucking issues with it at any point, right. I really didn't. That was so fucking shocking to me. And I can't stress yeah, enough well, how special this show is to me. Well, We'll, we'll continue this conversation it. about episode twelve. I really just want to hear what you think of it. I'm gonna rewatch it. Me, I'm, I'm rewatching it yeah, this summer. It just, yeah, it stuck out like a sore thumb. It was just like something about it where I was on board with it because I also started watching it live, but then it was just. I mean, this time around, I really enjoyed the Dougie Jones uh, character. Oh, it's the funniest <laughs> motherfucker of all time. Around, like, I can see how frustrating it is from hour to hour. No, like yeah, when yeah. I was watching it that it's summer. Every time Dougie was on the screen, I was literally like tears going down my face, screaming with laughter. I had several friends who stopped watching because they were fans of the original two seasons so much, which for me is a problem because I actually don't like the original two seasons unless something's directed by David Lynch specifically. Because I think the really drop, un- really I think uneven. the drop off from him directing to a hack directing is way too fucking steep. Yeah. And yeah, so the difference is stark looking back now. Absolutely. And so if you're into the first two seasons, I like I had friends who stopped watching because of Dougie Jones. They're like, I just want Cooper back. I'm like, I think you're, de- I think you're not realizing what show you're watching. I think because I think he came. Also, season one and two are still there. If you want Agent Cooper, yeah, absolutely. Watch, watch Everything's available. Everything's yeah. available. But also, <laughs> yeah. what he was trying to do because right, it was coming at the climax of shows were coming back. Of being revitalized yeah. and like Gilmore Girls right. and like uh, you know Will and Grace, uh, Will and, Grace and shit uh, like that. Yeah, he yeah. was what he was that. like. Fuck your nostalgia. I'm gonna give you right. the show you wanted to see again, but I ain't giving you anything you thought you were gonna want. Also, you're gonna get your Agent Cooper moment. Be patient. It's coming. And when it finally did came, that's why I said it was like most satisfying moment from any film or show all year. When Cooper finally did return. I remember I was like doing cartwheels around my apartment and clinging to the ceiling with like just like the world's biggest smile because the payoff was so so fucking worth it when it right. finally came. Yeah, yeah I mean, for I, sure. To be and, honest with you, I could do a whole fucking like five hour conversation about that show on its own. <laughs> we should, yeah. But we should probably but, yeah, start wrapping start it up ra- before we get crazy. Up. Uh, any any honorable mentions you want to make before I draw this episode to a close? I want. There was one thing. It got to be three hour plus. I know. Oh, I didn't. I wasn't a movie thing. It was more of um. If you remember, like, especially after uh, a bunch of Judd Apatow comedies were starting to come out, and it was like the DVD age and everything like that, one of my least favorite things, because I feel like they were trying to capitalize on something, I think people were wrapped up into the mythology of a director's cut and what it meant to, like, add fat to the bone. So many comedies, starting in the mid-2000s and onwards, even till today, unrated cuts, which was basically... Anchorman 2, the much longer, more boring version. (laughs) Watch five more riffs at the end of every fucking scene, and that's it. And you could feel the pace 
Like instantly. It was like magic. You're like, that's why deleted scenes work. The only thing I got from unrated cuts were that's why deleted scenes exist because something right. can go too fucking long. But it was this huge fucking like market. as a gimmick. Got, yeah, gimmick, which still kind of goes on mm. because I'm a huge fan of Dirty Grandpa for weird reasons, and I just bought that <laughs> finally on Blu-ray. That also has an unrated cut to it that I'm sure feels like it's a fat. Also, if, the, if the shit's that funny, then release it the unrated fucking, cut to then, start yeah, with. Yeah, you would have fucking put it out to yeah. begin with. But then even right. Anchorman 2 had that weird thing where he re-released it as a completely different cut. Yeah, he said it was, they had enough like raw footage for like three different movies where they were just riffing on like bullshit. And I'm like, maybe I'm sentimental or maybe I'm just old-fashioned, but... I like a well-written screenplay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but what do you what do you guys think right. that was? Do you think it was just like, do you think it was just a matter of unrated? Oh, this is, oh, because it was horror movies too. It's going to be bloodier. It's going to be funnier. Or is it they were tapping into something that was like, director's cut, it's going to be longer. It's going to be unbridled. Well, I, I, in the late 90s, when director's cut suddenly became in vogue, it became a great way to push collectors buying something for a second time and it, but initially it did start like this director's cut has never been available and this is a huge opportunity to write a historical wrong where a movie was butchered unfairly and now we finally uh-huh. have made amends and but then they exploited that and changed it and like well now we're just going to do extended versions for everything and we're just going to rape you for extra money like and Dying- so I, and uh-huh. I, I turned against extended versions Dying Darko was a financial success it was a critical success so why sort, would you sort of I mean well I mean I still think that it movie caught is up on- wildly over. Yeah, over- oh, no, no. oh, oh, absolutely. But for its time, was a critical success, and it did get him other pictures yeah. to be made. Yeah, I saw it twice in the theater. Why the I remember fuck for a long time, it? people were talking about how it was like the most fascinating, mysterious, like thought-provoking movie of the era. I was like. Did we see the same movie? Like, if you're like maybe for thirteen, you're like, that's the coolest movie ever. Oh no, there's a so for me there are like college movies of like Donnie Darko, Boondock Saint. Perfect, ex- yeah. You know, like, Perfect for me, for me to be honest with you, it's Fight Club also for me. But like yeah. there are those controversial but fair in my opinion. Yeah, there are those movies that are just like. <laughs> and you don't watch them since college and if you rewatch them you're like oh okay I grew up yeah there, there are definitely movies that are designed to be seen when you're 18, 19 and have the fucking time of your life and I, I wish people made more of those movies because those moments and experiences are so precious when they happen and well it gets people into movies too yeah, but they don't necessarily always age well I mean like fuck Dying Darko but Dying Darko also made me feel like oh I'm a cinephile I'm gonna see what else is out there you know so whatever it whatever it seems like now, that's the sort of shit like, oh, there's other things out there. I guess I'll keep nibbling along. What is a new version of a movie like Donnie Darko that like 19-year-olds right now are like, bro. <laughs> this is going to be the bro. Bro? <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen? <laughs> Get but, that director's cut gone. But it is a phenomenon, and it's, it's easy to make fun of, but I think also is vitally important that those movies do get made and those audiences get served those experiences. I don't know. I'd have to like, I have to wait till my cousin's a little bit older to ask them, but like, uh, I have a little brother who's 17 now, Nicholas, and I know he's about to enter that age. And he's like, bro, that you did that, this review of this movie, man, you totally, you totally missed the boat. It's like the best fucking movie ever. (laughs) Like, I know those moments are coming. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if Inception was that for a bunch of people. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't get hit. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're getting to the point of also like, yeah, 2010 is now ten going to be 10 years away from yeah. now. And also, like, I think the three of us are so far removed from college kids today, like, who the fuck knows what that movie is right now, you know? Who Everything the fuck that we knows? mentioned tonight. Is I hope like, it's Paperboy, oh. because I but, fucking love yeah. Paperboy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I tried getting into that, but I like I should get back into it. I, Don't yeah, worry about I it. It's okay. But there are a lot of my college movies 
that are really juicy. I mean, a perfect example, third year in college, junior, if you're UVA, say first, second, third, fourth year because we're snobs, but it's junior year for everybody else. A little movie called Big Lebowski came out. We saw okay. it a lot. Yeah. We loved it. Big Lebowski is, uh, that was our, our bro. And we would drink fucking white yeah, yeah, Russians yeah. and we would smoke weed. Oh, and we had the time of our too, life. Yeah. And 20 years later, people still like the movie. They still fine. love it. Yeah. I mean, but th- that's also one of those movies that's like, it is a good movie. It depends on what you're going to do with it. You know, it's like, weed's really good. How much are you going to smoke of it? Cocaine's fun. How much are you going to fucking snore <laughs> up your nose? Um, I think it's one of those things like, uh, yeah, yeah, there are certain people who, also, you could like Big Lebowski for the wrong reasons to a certain extent. Or it's the only movie you watch. You know, you know it's like you watch Casino and you're like, yeah, bro, let's get into that lifestyle. I'm like, no, that's not how you watch well, I remember the movie. There was, there was like people in college where I'd go into their dorm room and they'd have two DVDs and they'd be Swingers and Pulp Fiction. I'm like, oh. Oh, Swingers was another one, yeah. No, those are the only two yeah. movies you own? And it's like, I like both those movies, but it can't be the only two yeah. movies you own. Yeah. Where are the date rape drugs? Uh, <laughs> Oh, I am curious, just to add, like, one more to the list. Like, did, did you guys feel like um, Wolf of Wall Street too long? Not long enough? I saw it <laughs> or, like, twice, but haven't oh. revisited since. I did oh. enjoy it, and I laughed uproariously. And those scenes of Margot Robbie are like cinematic Viagra. But uh, King of Case... Can, uh, 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 I don't Because I saw it at um, Buttonamathon, and so, yeah. Well, yeah, that came out before the podcast. It came out... Um, oh, okay. It came out, six, it, was, it came out like nine months before the podcast. Oh, it was just as I think I was starting my blog, and then I met you. Yeah, I wrote about that. Yeah, I didn't talk about you that. you and I oh, okay. met the spring of 14, and we started the podcast in the fall Shortly thereafter then, yeah. Yeah, and so, but Wolf of Wall Street, I think you could easily make a case for it being a little on the long side, but goddamn, it's fucking funny, and it's outrageous, and it's got a bunch of hot naked chicks, and that's something that we never see in movies anymore. Like, six years later, I never in a million years would have predicted that we would be going through this it just boa constrictor, politically correct, lifeless, joyless, sexless, humorless era that people seem to crave like it's not just the filmmakers it's the audiences that are demanding well, i don't know it. if people are craving it or they're afraid to say something off color yeah well but it, but that yeah. is a it's because a, of cancel because culture. it's one of those things like, nobody right. wants to get canceled you know so it's like they, <laughs> there's this yeah. thing of um i i i've uh, for that polish script uh, i'm like on again off again working on there was this thing i've read a lot of uh, vaclav ha- uh, havel uh-huh. Apple, yeah. Thank you. He uh, he used to be a the, the Czech Republic. Who who he was the president of what country right after World War Two? After World, uh, or I actually like in the seventies, eighties. Well, then it would have been Republic. Czechoslovakia. Uh, it's Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Wait, wait, no. But when it become Czech Republic and they got separated, like the nineties, no, early. No, 90s? no, earlier than that. Because Czechoslovakia actually. was still Czechoslovakia. Well, they got separated because they got separated during World War Two for a moment. Anyway, regardless, he wrote a whole thing of um, so. The idea is that you don't necessarily believe in all these things, but the grocer always puts a sign out on their window of like, Mm. you know, I'm for the workers party. And the whole thing is if you take that sign off, all you're doing is taking a sign off. You're not putting it up. You know, you're not saying that you're against the workers party, but you didn't put the sign up like every other fucking grocer and every other store in the city. So therefore you were going to get in prison you're gonna be stripped mm-hmm. away from your family sent somewhere that no one fucking remembers where you are. Says, you're gonna get your twitter profile taken away so well i think a lot of i think a lot of that today is just like you better fucking signal that you liked it because then people are just gonna jump mm-hmm. down your throat which as everyone knows i've gone through a couple of times with disliking black panther for instance i got fucking reamed out <laughs> oh yeah. us 
That was another uh, big thing because yeah, I us, thought that was oh, fucking man, garbage. Yeah. Well, saying, not I, a fan. Yeah, I think it, I, I'm repeating myself, but I think we're it's a, a fad. It's not a, a particularly cool fad, and I think the same way like they made like certain like hippie movies in the late '60s, early '70s that feel insanely dated now. We're like people like this shit, yeah. but it was part of the cultural moment. I think there's a cultural moment we're going through right now, and I'm just old enough where I just I'm not buying into it like I don't, my least favorite thing is also watching movies where like this is what the world should be but we're gonna pretend it is this way now as opposed to yeah. i don't know i'm a big mirror type guy i'm just like no i'm just gonna put up a mirror if i'm gonna try to direct something and that i'm gonna just show you what we're looking at and if you don't like it then you should do something and change the world or as much as you can i'm not gonna fucking make a movie again like black Klansman, where it's like that never happened in some of these have you saw black Klansman? Yeah, yeah. yeah uh yeah. that white cop did not have a sting operation put against him because he was being a little fucking mouthy to black people the entire time like that didn't fucking happen none yeah. of that should happen i don't like that we're teaching people that that's what the 70s was like it wasn't. Hmm. So how are we gonna fucking make changes if we're like, oh, but it's like, not too bad. Also, I just am a fan of individuality and independent and voice thought of some and like kind. directors who think for themselves and don't feel a need to check off boxes because was it Justin Chang that guy you like so much? Because Justin Chang has yeah. on certain boxes. Directors yeah, need to check off. He's stupid. Yeah, oh, I don't man. know. So it's a, yeah. it, it's all tricky. Cultural but I mean, gatekeepers. But uh, I mean, uh, so what do you what do you think? What do we what do we think about now about directors? I mean, do directors cuts even happen really all that much anymore? Like, well, no. I I would still encourage it. Like, I don't think anybody should be discouraged from making a work a certain length. Like, I I mean, just visually, like, uh, you know, with novels, like seeing them on bookshelves, like modern novels, like. I am proud to see like something like Parallel Stories like by Peter Nandas being this gigantic tome or like the book that I'm currently reading that you're a big fan of Mikhail 2666 the, the you know that that ambition exists mm-hmm. you know and I, I don't think we should restrict that as much as like I think all three of us do kind of agree about length that you know it's like if you can make it shorter it can be better you know but at the same time it's like if it's organic, like it's part of the flow, like there's a natural flow to the length, then yeah, sure, why not? But making make- a shorter <laughs> movie doesn't necessarily mean like going from three hours to an hour and a half. It's just like go from three hours to like, it seems like your movie could be even 256, man. Like like if you take yeah, seconds out here and there. Make it as long as it needs to be, but make sure there's not a wasted frame. Like exactly. Make, make a five, once again, make 1900. Make 1900 yeah. if you want, if, go, go to it. But... Don't make it for its own sake. Like tell the story that needs to be told in the time that you need to tell it. Because ironically enough, I think like the so the Polish script I'm working on that's called Cowards and everything. Like that is something that as a person who always talks about eighty minute, ninety minute movies, I feel like already in my bones. I'm like shit. I don't. I can't do this under two twenty at least. Like I know that there's so much shit that has to go in there that I feel like they can't be excised necessarily until someone else tells me right. so. So I don't necessarily have a problem with those runtime. When I mean, are you going to adapt Jodorowsky's The Borges? Mikhail just brought me about my graphic novel. It was written by Jodorowsky and drawn by Milo Minara. The thing's going to get me mm. fucking crucified. Are you kidding me? I opened it. I took a look through all those fucking pages, man. It's, it's like a gross. It's like 300 pages of like incest and like religious persecution and political corruption. All right, but here's and- the thing. Look at even Game of Thrones and how that's fucking... Like, remember where it started and now where it's ended. Everything seems to have like chastened and become cleaner. Defang, declawed. And, like, and not necessarily right. in a bad way. Like, I don't think we needed so much... Listen, I love looking at a fine, naked female body as well. But, like, I feel like it wasn't always telling, to, going towards a story. But whereas now, in those, that last season, it's just like, last two seasons maybe, it was like, you washed a lot of shit down. Like, to the point where even, like, 
you know, John well, fucking his switch. like Westworld season one, nothing but orgies. Westworld season two, not a scrap of skin to be seen. Like HBO, they know yeah. how to lure you in. And then they yeah. take it away. But remember, like, so season one of Game of Thrones is like, incest is like, oh, wow, I'm still really wrestling with this. It's so weird that this brother and sister, they're, like, running this world secretly, but fucking each other, oh. and they're related. Yeah. Whereas in, like, what, John? First of all, they have no chemistry, John and Daenerys. But also on top of that, we're just like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool, I guess. Like, because they weren't making a it thing of it. that line in The Master, like, have you ever, like, like what was the question about have you ever, like, committed Have you ever fucked the other? And he's like, it was my aunt. I was drunk and she looked good. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's like, that's a nice little oh, fucking take on it. That's like so, how that right. would have realistically happened. Whereas now it's just like, oh, I really I don't know. They're, 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 that was probably the worst part of the last season is that you don't feel anything between the two of them. And the whole crux mm-hmm. of this season is the two of them. Weird right. that they couldn't figure that fucking out. But right. well, Carla, I'm gonna give you the opportunity since you are the long the long movie expert and it's a, it's a school night. And I know mm-hmm. people need to get to bed. Any final yeah, thoughts right. on long well, he's movies? He's in LA. He's got three hours. Uh, your favorite yeah, long yeah. movies. It, see, just, there's daylight coming through my window right now. <laughs> but uh, no, no question. Um, just uh, the floor is yours, and just for okay, cl- closing right. remarks. Yeah. So just a couple of things. I mean, with the um, the honorable mentions. Okay, so the two films I want to mention are. Um, this Chinese film called TCQ, I'm not pronouncing it correctly, or West of the Tracks is what it's known as in the English title. And it's uh, directed by Wang Bing, um, or Wang Bing. And uh, it's a nine-hour film. It's his first film that he ever made. And it was back in 2003. And it's just like this completely compelling documentary about like this industrial um, like railroad town in China and how it's like just falling apart, like the industry is falling apart. And the amazing thing, it comes in three parts, so you can actually watch it like separately. Like the three parts um, can work independently, so you can watch three three-hour films. But um, the first one focuses on the factory closing down and how it affects the workers. And the second focuses on the teenagers who live in that town and what they they can do basically in their free time. And um, it acts as like kind of like a teen movie, and it's just really compelling. And then the third. Uh, just narrows down on like a father and a son and their relationship and like how him like being laid off from the factory affects their relationship and it's it's just beautiful and it's like one of the most intimate documentaries he I think he shot it on his own with just like a mini DV camera and it's just amazing so I mean I'm sure neither of you will want to watch it but if somebody in your audience like hears about it and is like is curious like I I'm think actually kind of curious yeah how long it's was it though sec- you said nine hours yeah mm, okay um, i can manage that yeah it's my second favorite <laughs> in a couple of years <laughs> yeah 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 i mean I, if we have time to, to sit down and watch it i'll, I'll do it with you well uh, do you, and, wait, is it like readily available online though uh yeah i bought the dvd actually from the rotterdam film festival website so they release like they actually oh, but it's not streaming anywhere movie. no it's not okay. um but yeah like it, I think it was on Mubi for a while, uh, but yeah, of course you know Mubi it expires. Um, the thirty day. Thing. Uh, and the second movie I want to uh, like uh, give a shout out to is the director's cut of Margaret by Kenneth Lonergan. Mm. So that's three hours, um, and I love the theatrical cut because I mean one of the things that I think Margaret really establishes that uh, is continued in uh, Manchester by the Sea is just his odd editing rhythms. And I think it's brought even more to the forefront in the theatrical cut of Margaret because barely anything is given any time to breathe. Like it just like is like, okay, we're doing like a 150 minute version of a three hour film. So we're going to have to compress certain things. And like, 
uh, Matt Damon kind of appears, but he's not really in the film. And in the in the the director's cut, he has more of a prominent role. So it's just like all these things, and like Anna Paquin's performance is just like kind of it's it's on the the edge of like being just insane, but at the same time, like it's it's brilliant. So um, yeah, I highly recommend uh, Margaret. And I guess the last thing I just really want to say, and this is just a a quote from Tarkovsky about um, like uh, um, length, and like he talks about like basically uh, War and Peace, where he says um, uh, it doesn't stop me from loving War and Peace uh, for those passages that are a um, mistake in quotes for the genius. Um, Revealed not in the absolute perfection of a work, but in absolute fidelity to himself, in commitment to his own passion. So, yeah, that's what he talks about. It's just like, you know, certain passages people would consider to be like, oh, I can skip over it. Like, it's a mistake. But to Tarkovsky, like, it's it's the artist, like, being true to himself. Like, he needs to include those, like, little quirks that make him who he is, you know. So, yeah. yeah I should have thrown one Tarkovsky onto my list. I guess Andre Rublev, is that his longest... Probably. I think that's his only one that's over three hours. Yeah, yeah. that's the only one. That's, what do you think? Too long, so. too short, or just right? Just right. I yeah. only watched the second half with you <laughs> right. before yeah, we yeah. did the episode. I thought it was just right from what I saw, though. Yeah, it's a wild movie. I've only seen that one time, but I was enthralled. It's... I thought yeah. Stalker was just right. Stalker fucking rules. But then there are other movies of his that I think are a little length. I mean, I, the the one that jumps to mind right now is The Mirror. Ooh, yeah. the I mirror? really needed that to <laughs> fucking end. Uh, I, saw the, I saw the new art in a state of altered consciousness and I was mesmerized but once again I was like you know 23 movie crazed I was like the mayor is the new art I'm gonna get drink a cup of coffee smoke some weed and just zone out and I, I did and I had I had a fine time <laughs> yeah for me it's just I yeah. can't remember thinking to myself like cool everything's a double I get it can we fucking move on already with this story <laughs> right. well I mean for somebody yeah who consistently makes over two hour films like that's the one that everybody like goes to is like oh this is his masterpiece but I'm actually more partial to like nostalgia in that film, so that's my favorite Tarkovsky film. Well, Carla, where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation with you online? Uh, online, okay, not in the city of Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, if you want to give yeah. us your address, yeah, if you want to give a hand out your address, by all means, PO just... box of some kind. It's Hollywood and Vine. Um, yeah, I'm in the mall. Uh, no, I um, I'm only on Instagram. That's really it. Like. Um, I mean, if you know my full name, maybe you can find me on Facebook, but I'm not really prone to, like, adding people I don't know. So well, <laughs> Instagram will, at Astrofish. Yeah. I'll include your <laughs> your your Instagram in, a, in, a, in the show notes for the episode. Yeah. All right. Astrofish. That's it on Instagram. Yeah, people will ask you questions periodically on Twitter. Like, when I see, like, a, like a question to an old episode, I'm like, I don't think he checks his account that often, but, you know, at least they like the episode enough to ask him a question. So. <laughs> oh, if there's a question, yeah, forward it to me, for sure. I'll answer Or you can just check your Twitter account. <laughs> just check your Twitter. I mean, at least for the <laughs> oh, next two weeks after this episode or whatever. Oh, or the, okay. Yeah. All right, I'll have to check. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And what about you, McKay? Where can people find you? I know um, you've been avoiding uh, Twitter like the plague. I, no, no. I don't I don't avoid it. I don't avoid it. Um, but out of sight, out of mind. Um, yeah, that's the thing. I just forget to go there sometimes. Writing your script and finishing your script is more important. F- yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, but on Twitter, uh, when this episode is released, I, I, I do usually, you know, uh, circle around for about two, three weeks after that to see if anyone's interested in having a conversation. So you, they could find me on Twitter at the Karadimov once this is released, and on Facebook as Mikhail Karadimov. I am. Uh, I do friend randos if I see that they're like uh, have mutual friendships with other 
podcast folk and everything. Yeah, so I by all means, they, too, yeah. you could do yeah, you could do a that. Friend of a friend or something. But yeah. if you uh, try to friend me and they're only uh, you know you have like one picture and you're trying to sell fucking sky vodka or some shit, like I'll know what your shit is up to. Also, why are you listening to this podcast? That's weird. Because well, it's not weird because, because this podcast awesome. is good, but like, I don't want to know that scam artists are listening to me and getting a kick out of it. Well, we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Please leave us a rating and review. And if you want to see my big, dumb, shiny, bald head ranting and raving about TV and film, you can find my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where we've been doing some live streams lately with some of the familiar faces from the Wrong Real Rogue Scout. But you can always find me on Twitter at Colbrex, and I'm pretty much there day or night, but can't thank you for listening. Watch some of these movies. If you've watched, if you watch any of these movies as a result of this podcast, then mission accomplished. So thank you much. For, yeah, thank you so much for listening. But thanks. Uh, but more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.